everyone, and welcome to the very first of what we believe are going to be many episodes of the Resleavables YouTube edition. No longer a podcast due to all of these cameras and things behind us. I am your host, Cedric Phillips, at Cedric A. Phillips, on all of the things. I am joined by my co-host, my partner in crime, and arguably Darius Miles' biggest fan, Patrick Sullivan at Basic Mountain on Twitter. Hello, my friend. Shout out D Miles. Shout out Knuckleheads, one of my favorite podcasts. Q Rich. All nothing but love. Two awesome dudes. Yeah, they're phenomenal. Two just great dudes. So much fun, so many great stories, and uh an inspiration for me to take this to video form. If we can get close to what they've accomplished with their podcast and everything, I'm gonna say we're doing pretty good for ourselves, yeah? Definitely. I mean, they get some big hitters in interview-wise, and uh, you and I, you know, for a while, no interviews. No. Not looking to, you know. So the format's a little bit different, but absolutely. Two legends and big inspirations for me for doing this on the video. Well, we are here on video. We are no longer a podcast. We loved what we did before with the podcast version of the Receivables, but we felt that on YouTube we could do so much more like this right now. Yeah, we haven't done that on camera since 2020, February to be exact, and it feels good to be able to do that, and uh, I think make each other laugh a little bit side by side. Definitely. I think it was February of 2020 that we did our last show together with Star City Games. Yep. We had a couple more ready to go in the can in March, then COVID came really strong in the United States, that got shut down, and we were never really able to get back on the road. We were doing the podcast for a little while, but... We knew when we wanted to bring it back, we wanted to do something a little bit more ambitious and a little bit more complete than we did last time. And so we're ready to go. Uh, first episode, really excited about it. And thanks everyone for your patience. We certainly read and heard tons of feedback on social media. So many tweets. When is this coming back? What's going on? Where have the archives gone? All of that. We appreciate all of that. And we're back and we're ready to go. Bought some chairs, some cameras, some lights. Built some bookcases from Ikea. Got some fun things in these bookcases back here. Yeah, this actually came in really useful that I've spent the last 20 years collecting uh, dumb things for babies. Yes. Because how else would we decorate these shelves and show off our variety of different but adjacent interests to Magic Gathering? So yes. You see comic books, sports cards, some regular books. Uh, hats, yeah, hats, helmets, uh, Ric Flair, uh, Daimler, Adidas. Woo! So, we spent a lot of time on this, a lot of energy. Uh, we hope it looks good. And thank you again for your patience and for your enthusiasm for us coming back and doing this. So, as we prepare to do the show, we thought, where should we begin? Because last time when we did the podcast, we jumped around a ton just kind of doing things kind of random during a very strange time in the world, in our lives, during the pandemic. And after some back and forth, why not start from set one? Yeah. Start from the very beginning and just climb that very, very long ladder of sets because Magic has almost 100 expansions now. And uh, from what we gather, they don't appear to be slowing down. So we're going to start from set number one. I guess technically sets one, two, and three. It's a little nebulous, right? Alpha, beta, and unlimited. They're individual sets, but they're also 
the same thing in some respects. Yeah, you can look at alpha as the first set, beta as an effort to clean up some of the errors that went out the door with alpha, and then unlimited as a second printing of beta. It's fine to call them all the same set, uh, sort of colloquially. There are some differences, like I mentioned, with the alpha missing a few cards and whatnot. But the alpha, beta, unlimited, I would sort of bundle together as Magic's first set. So, as always, we are going to do the facts of the set, the cycles of the set, the mechanics of the set. We'll add in some new bells and whistles as well, and then finish things off with an award show and grade the set. So, if you want to dive into the facts, I'm ready if you are. I love this set. I can't speak enough about it. Besides being a competitive Magic player, I've worked in game design for close to 20 years. I've worked primarily on trading card games, including Magic. And the brilliance of this set uh, has laid the foundation for Magic to be a game going into its 30th year. It's been the inspiration for dozens of other similar games, some of which are actually pretty fun themselves. And for a student of the craft such as myself, this is, uh, I compare it to reading the Bible. Like, this is the foundation for all the information. The tablets. The tablets. These are the tablets. These are the stone tablets of game design. So for people out there who are interested in game design, in sort of the history of magic, there is no better place to start than Alpha Beta Unlimited. Well, with that, we're going to kick things off with the facts of the set. All right, let's begin with the facts of Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited, ABU for short. Okay, so Alpha was the first print run of Limited Edition, Beta was the second print run of Limited Edition, and Unlimited is the second edition of the core set. That sounds a little bit confusing. Is there a clear way to clean that up a little bit? I would say Alpha's the first set, Beta is a revision, Unlimited is a reprint. Okay, perfect. But all the same cards, effectively. Yeah, there again, there's some errors in Alpha. There's a few cards missing. We'll go over that as we get later in the show, but it's fine to just sort of bundle this into one set. All right, so A for Alpha was released on August 5th, 19. 93 hmm. almost 30 years ago yeah which is nuts as magic is celebrating its 30th anniversary it was released at origins which is a gaming convention uh the first big gaming convention i ever attended in columbus ohio it was a small print run of 2.6 million cards which might sound like a lot but given the print runs of magic cards nowadays and as we're going to see as we go through these sets that's not much at all i have heard reasonable estimates of the number of rares in alpha as 1100 per now to put that into some sort of context if you had a tournament with 700 people in it it would not be enough for a playset for everyone of any given rare it would not even be enough for half the room so even though 2.7 million sounds like a lot and certainly by the standards of the time that was an awfully large print run for set one of a game by modern standards, we're talking about a minuscule amount of the print run, and it's part of the reason that cards from Alpha are so expensive nowadays. There just isn't a lot of it, even the comments. Sets did not receive much exposure beyond the West Coast of the United States during that time, and then it was available from August 1993 through September 1993, so not a long time to be able to scoop this set up. And that sort of mirrors the telling of history of this time. Magic comes out at Origins, it's the talk of the convention, and it sells out instantaneously. And from there, Richard Garfield and the rest of the people over at Wizards of the Coast kind of had to scramble to print additional waves of this set because it sold out so quickly. Well, that transitioned us beautifully into beta. 
which was released on October 4th, 1993, so not that long after Alpha had kind of sold out that whole thing in Origins that took place in 93. It was advertised as having, quote, more than 300 cards, end quote, which is kind of funny looking at Magic now. So a third version of each basic land was added in the beta release to validate this claim. Some more basics to get to that 300 card threshold. Beta was a larger print run of 7.8 million cards. Now think about that. From 2.6 million to 7.8. Almost essentially tripling in size. Right. You 3x. It's crazy. Right out the door. Yeah. So that had to be, that kind of shows you how well Alpha went. And they're like, we got to we gotta jam more of these cards out here. And you would think 3x the print run, well, that's pretty ambitious. That's, you know, now we're at risk maybe of not selling out. Nope. It was gone in like six weeks. Available <laughs> from mid-October 93 until mid-December 93, and then basically gone. Uh, cards were evenly divided over 60-card starter decks and 15-card boosters. And then there were UPC codes that were now printed on the bottom of each starter pack, uh, but Alpha did not have that, so that was kind of started in beta at that time. And then we move on to Unlimited. Uh, so that's the U of ABU. Unlimited was released December 1st, 1993. It was released after Beta had sold out as quickly as Alpha had. Uh, the print run was announced to be 40 million cards, the largest set yet. So 2.6 to 7.8 to 40 million. Yeah, so we go from the Alpha print run, 3x that to Beta, and then 6x that print run to Unlimited. And it also sold out basically instantly. Can you imagine if they were wrong about like this, like the popularity of their game? You kind oh, of left yeah. holding the bag? Oh, I mean, I've worked on card games where we had a set one that did really, really well. And then set two, we sort of printed to that demand and a little bit more. And set two did not do particularly well. And we, the game basically never recovered. Yeah. So it is a huge risk to be printing this much, even though by modern sensibilities, this is a tiny fraction of the print run of any magic set of any sort of commander release. This is so much smaller. But at the time, this was a pretty big roll of dice because, you know, if you printed unlimited at six times when you printed in beta and the demand sort of dried up, there might not be another set. Yeah, there might not be Antiquities or Fallen Empires or any other sets that we're going to cover over the next handful of years. Uh, unlimited was available from mid-January 94 through mid-March 94. Cards were sold again in 60-card starter decks and 15-card boosters. The original plan of the creators had been to mark unlimited cards with a gray border, not white, but they found out that this was technically too difficult and had to settle for what they considered to be the much less aesthetically satisfying white border. Wizards of the Coast actually instructed Cardamundi, who makes the cards and prints the cards, to change the black border to white in order to maintain the collecting value of the initial limited print run. So, it goes to show you that Magic, they were thinking about the collecting aspect of the game right when the game started. And... If you think that's a little bit strange, when we got to this point in Unlimited, this is a little bit before my time, but close enough to when I started playing that I have some sense of the history. The cards from Beta in particular, and we'll get into why not Alpha. Beta in particular, the the Moxes, Black Lotus, Ancestral Recall, Time Walk, these cards were already worth quite a bit of money. I mean, we're talking $50, $100, $150 for these cards. That's a lot, that's a lot then. For a new game, yeah. you know, we're talking a, a crazy unheard about a value in these cards. And so Magic went out of their way to make sure that there was demarcation in the print runs, that you knew what the set the particular card was from, and that was an effort to sort of preserve the collectability and history of the game right from the get-go. So, Alpha does great. Beta does great. Unlimited does great. Okay, now, white border versus black border versus gray border. I think, I think the community would agree the white border is inferior 
to Black Border. It is the popular consensus, okay. and also most games that release cards aspire to have a Black Border, so there's something to that. Now, can you imagine Grey Border? Well, I can kind of imagine the Silver... It's close enough to the Silver Borders that you see on some of the un-expansions yeah. that I can kind of imagine it, but it it is weird to think about that being the sort of default secondary bordering option. That's like where they wanted to go and they just weren't able to go there. So just a little bit of revisionist history that we could have, and I don't know, technically still could have gray border cards at some point in the future. Cause I'm sure it's a little bit easier to do now than it was back in 93. I'm not sure. I, I Again, I've worked on these games for a very long time and you would be shocked what comes back from the printer as being hard to do. Okay, so I don't okay. know if it's necessarily been solved, but um, yeah, an interesting thing to think about there's so much stuff that goes on in these first sets that sort of laid the foundation for how the next few sets got built and then magic sort of exploding and going from there yeah and any slight tweak would have probably informed what the cards looked like all the way up to today so yeah interesting stu case study for history here uh limited was the first set to officially be titled something other than magic the gathering uh the limited edition label appears on booster boxes decks and booster packs and the rule book was the exact same as for beta, so exact same rulebooks there. So you see some minor changes taking place. They, they of course, want to take the big swing with the gray border, end up having to settle on the white border, and there you go. Uh, the alpha set symbol, it's the letter A against the black box. The beta set symbol, it's the letter B against the black box. And then the unlimited set symbol is the letter U against the black box. Simpler times. Now we see logos and sort of weird things as the set symbols now, but then it was just a simple letter. Right, and keep in mind that this is not anything that appears on any of the cards, if you happen to see these. Very true. This is before the expansion symbols were introduced. Yeah. So this is sort of coding on the back end. This is something that appears on some of the sealed product, but this is before Magic had the idea of expansion symbols because, as Sergey mentioned, it was just Magic the Gathering. This yeah. was the whole game. There wasn't the idea of uh, separate sets until we got to Arabian Nights. Let's, start qu let's talk quantities in these sets. Alpha contains... 295 black bordered cards, 74 commons, 95 uncommons, 116 rares, and 10 basic lands. Beta contains 302 black bordered cards because they had to add a couple of cards to get over that 300 card threshold that they were promising everyone. So instead of 74 commons, there are 75. Instead of 90, uh, there are still, excuse me, 95 commons and 116 rares in alpha versus the 117 rares in beta. But the big difference here is there are 15 basic lands in beta as opposed to just the 10 in alpha. So a small adjustment, but nothing major. Right, and you can see that in the coding of the sets if you go to most online shops. Uh, the basic lands in alpha are labeled A, B, and then the beta ones are labeled A, B, C. So this is your wheelhouse. Two of the, R, pe all two of the R pieces are reused from alpha, and then there's that third one that you mentioned, which is new. Okay. Yeah, this is this is all you, because you have like all these old lands, all these old cards. I know nothing about this. This to me is, uh, I mean, I go back and I look at the file of this set uh, every month or so, because it's just good to refresh yourself with some of the fundamentals of game design if you work in the field. And this set, it gets talked a lot about, you know, Magic is brilliant, and the game engine's great. It's been going on for a really long time. But Alpha, you know, they didn't really know what was going on. Sure. And that's not true. There were some misunderstandings for sure. We'll get into all that. But a lot of what's weird about the set is the fact that the print run is really small and they just assumed that people weren't going to own a lot of copies of these cards. If you go into analyzing the set with that in mind, the brilliance really starts to come out on top of the fact that the game engine itself is 30 years strong and still going. No signs of slowing down. Yeah, just still going. Some minor changes along the way, obviously, but still going. As far as Unlimited is concerned, uh, 302 white-bordered cards. So 
exact same allocations you see in beta 75 commons 95 uncommons 117 rares and 15 basic lands the set was designed and developed by richard garfield and a bevy of other folks uh charlie catino scaff elias don felice tom fontaine jim lynn joel mick chris page dave petty barry reich bill rose and elliot seagal they were known as the limited edition design and development team uh, to those fine folks, if I got your name incorrect, I do apologize. But you actually know some of these people. So Bill Rose, I know. He has worked at Wizards for a very long time and someone who's very good and sharp. Uh, Scaff, again, one of the OGs. I do have a Scaff story. I love a story. It is not complimentary. And I, I say this, I say this with, I do like Scaff personally. I obviously have a ton of respect for his work here. But I do have to talk about this. All right, let's go. U.S. Nationals, Kansas City, the one that Craig Kremples won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like middle of the 2000s. Yeah. 2004, 2005, 2006. Yeah, somewhere in that range. Yeah. range. Okay. So it's Kansas City, middle of summer. I don't do particularly well in the event. Sunday, Matt Place, who uh, also an old figurehead over at Wizards of the Coast and early Magic the Gathering pro, he's from Kansas City. Okay. He's like, you want to go play basketball? Corded up the street. Great. Scaff's come along with us. He's there hanging out at Nationals. I think maybe he still works at Wizards at the time. I don't know, but he's hanging out. Scaff is a big dude. 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, I don't know. Okay, all right. So we go out to the basketball court, and it's like 95 degrees and humid. I mean, it's Missouri. In the summer. In the summer. It's so sticky. And we're going out, we're playing. And, you know, I got I got a little shot to me. I got a little range. It was Steph Curry before Steph Curry was Steph Curry. So I'm, we go play a pickup game. I hit a bunch of threes. You know, it's all good. So the next game, I'm on Scaff's. I'm on Scaff's team. Okay. And Scaff is again a big dude, stronger than anyone else there, and taller. Okay. So he plants himself under the basket, and basically the second I cross midcourt, he starts screaming, "Shoot it!" Because he's thinking, "Well, it'll go in, and if not, I'm there for the rebound." Okay. Matt Place who's quite good at basketball, quite athletic, It's also picking me up full court. Also, I spent the entire weekend smoking cigarettes. So I'm playing in 95-degree heat, being picked up full court by someone way stronger, more athletic than me. Okay. And the second that I barely get across the half-court line, Scaff is screaming at me to just shoot it. Okay. It's the worst game of pickup basketball I ever played. <laughs> just by far. But, again, shout-out to Scaff. Huge influence on Magic. Worked on Alpha, which is, again, the foundation for all of this. But uh, pick up hoops with him 15 years ago, not that much fun. Did you shoot it? Oh, yeah, I cranked it. I mean, because Scaff is right. It's either going <laughs> in or he's right there, <laughs> or right? he's getting the rebound. Sure, yeah, exactly. Okay, all right, all right. So a little ahead of his time, perhaps. I like it. I like it. Uh, let's talk about the ability to distinguish between Alpha and Beta cards. Again, this is kind of your wheelhouse. I know you have these cards in your collection and everything. This is more your time than mine. Uh, but Alpha cards can easily be distinguished be, uh, from beta cards by their more rounded corners so alpha has a corner radius of about two millimeters instead of the subsequent one millimeter standard for all other tournament legal cards uh each tournament required that cards must appear unmarked without the use of protective sleeves and this initially made them less desirable and thus less valuable than beta and even unlimited cards which is insane to think about so Alpha sort of set the stage for the Stoneforge Mystic is legal if you play exactly the Stoneforge Mystic deck. Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember ruling that. that came out, you know, in 2015 or 2016. That was, that was like early 2010s where, uh, for the people who don't know this, Stoneforge Mystic, they had banned a card in standard in a really long time. And Stoneforge Mystic was kind of causing some problems, whatever. So 
They like, I think this is when they banned Stoneforge, they banned Jace, and maybe one other card. But the fix to this was you can play Stoneforge Mystic, but you can only play it in the precon <laughs> that it was in. And I believe, if memory serves, there were only two, Storm, two Stoneforge Mystics in the precon, but that's the only way that you could play Stoneforge Mystic legally. This is more my time when I was at my like competitive a apex. And I remember when this announcement came, I'm like, this is insane. And there was a open in Seattle that weekend. And one of the Seattle players who was really good, his name was Joe Bono. I remember him very well. Uh, he played the pre-con the, in the main event <laughs> as a challenge. <laughs> so keep in mind, again, we're talking about the early days here. There's no precursor to this. Yes. Magic is the first of its kind. So what that means is sleeves didn't really come out until a little bit further down the line that were meant to be played with these cards. Uh, people played in, you know, penny sleeves and some people played in top loaders or whatever. But the first Ultra Pro sleeves that I remember came out in like 96, something sure. like that. And also, funny enough, they were see-through, so it still didn't solve the problem. Okay. They were just sleeves that you could shuffle with. Yep. Anyway, what this meant was your alpha cards were marked because beta introduced the different corners and then that's what magic has done from beta all the way up to today. So you could play alpha cards if your deck was 100% alpha. This introduces a couple problems. One, the print run of alpha is extremely low, as we've mentioned before. Uh, two, you can't play with Volcanic Island, which <laughs> is one of the more important cards uh, to early, you know, type one vintage magic. Most people don't know. Volcanic Island, not an alpha. Didn't make it. Nope. So no one really did this. I started going to type one tournaments in, you know, 95, 96, and I never saw anyone playing an all alpha deck. And if you went to the dealers, the alpha card was easily the cheapest version of all three because at that point, them as collector's items, it was sort of thing, but no one really cared all that much. It was really about being able to play the game and you couldn't play with the alpha cards in most settings. And so alpha was actually the cheapest version of most of these cards, which is very funny to think about today if you look at the prices of alpha cards versus beta and beyond. Insane. Insane. It's because of those rounded corners. Uh, beta cards use a less rounded corner than alpha cards do. There was a new four millimeter corner die cut that was purchased by Cardamundi to facilitate the increase in demand from millions of cards because the game started getting so popular. Due to this, there's a difference from the standard half-inch corner uh, found on playing cards. This allowed future sets to have larger artwork and smaller borders. So this is like a pretty well-known thing <laughs> that these cards are different. Yes. Okay. Uh, alpha cards were printed using three different print sheets. There were one for rares, one for uncommons, and one for commons. Basic lands were included in all three sheets, so the chance of getting a basic land instead of another card is 4.13% for rares, 21.5% for uncommons, and 38.84% for commons, which means that the booster packs, apparently they had a lot of lands in them. They had a lot of lands in them. Sometimes you didn't get a rare. You just got another land. Good. Now, at the time, you probably didn't know because, again, there was really no information out there until a little bit later about what was the rares, what were the hard-to-find cards. Sure. Not really known information. But again, think about the times. You need a lot of basic lands to play the game. Yep. And this is, you know, we're only talking about the dual lands existing at this point. So most decks were just a bunch of basic lands. And you need a lot of them to be able to construct a deck. And ideally you have enough swamps, enough mountains, enough islands, so on to build whatever deck you want. And so the early booster packs have five, six basic lands, which looks really weird today if you look at modern boosters, which maybe have one basic, maybe zero, depending on the set. But at the time... The basic lands were actually more useful than a lot of the commons and uncommons because you just needed so many to play. And you got to think about it this way too, right? Nowadays, if we think about going to any magic tournament, any store, whatever, 
Univasic lands, yes, obviously, they're over there. Go away, right? And you can just take them. You don't have to pay for them, right? But when the game is just starting, you got to get the basic lands into the system somehow, right? This is the easiest way to do it. It's it's definitely the biggest practical bottleneck in terms of, let's say you bought some packs with a friend, you go home, you want to build some decks, right? Even if we make a rule that says, you know, let's build 40 card decks instead of 60, whatever the case may be, the biggest practical challenge that you will encounter at this time is we don't have enough lands to play with. Sure. And like proxying as a concept doesn't exist at this point. Yep. And you're also writing over your spells and creatures to replicate your lands if you're doing that sort of thing. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. So again, it is weird if you look at it now and if a modern magic player were to go open up a pack of Alphabet Unlimited Revised, the first thing they would probably comment on is there's so many lands in this pack. But it was a necessity at the time to make sure that people actually had enough lands to play with. Makes sense. Makes sense. Numerous alpha cards have errors that were fixed in the beta release. So when we talked about Volcanic Island, that is one. And there is another card that was accidentally left out of the set entirely. Circle of Protection Black. Okay. Uh, two versions of each basic land with unique artwork were included. Uh, and then... A third version of each basic land with new artwork was added to beta. So we kind of juice and more lands into those packs. Great. The playtest names for many cards were initially very generic. So Angel instead of Sarah Angel. Skeletons instead of Drudge Skeletons. Um, this was like kind of a simple way to kind of get things started about the designing the game. But over time, they decided adding descriptors created more flavor and allowed other types of angels and skeletons and everything else to appear in future expansions. But just think if Sarah Angel was just angel so it's often said that the set doesn't have lore or story or flavor yes that's not really true the inspiration for alpha was dungeons and dragons and if i recall correctly richard garfield actually said in an interview at one point what he imagined what people would play magic in between sessions of dungeons and dragons okay so if you look at those playtest names they are awfully generic but they match what you would find in a monster's manual black dragon skeleton zombie vampire that's how monsters are described certainly in the early editions of dungeons and dragons fortunately they had the foresight to realize one we're going to be making more stuff so we should flavor it up and two these descriptive names give us the opportunity to sort of lay down some of the foundational flavor and lore of the world in a way that's not obtrusive or invasive so a really good choice to add names like sarah angel banalish hero shivan dragon that's a great call to make over time uh, but keep in mind, when the game was being playtested, it was seen as sort of uh, adjacent to Dungeons and & Dragons, and a lot of those names you mentioned are just cribbed straight from the Monsters Manual. Sure. It just feels like this game was kind of... I know you mentioned that it was something to do in between games with Dungeons & Dragons. It almost feels like it was like an add-on. You know, just like when you get like... Nowadays, like on a PlayStation 5, it's like, oh, this is like a little value pack. Something else to do, you know, when you're not doing the main thing that you're doing, and now it has grown into this. It is not a mystery to me why the same company would be in charge of Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering. Sure. It is because Magic is sort of a spiritual descendant of Dungeons & Dragons. Even though the games are very different in a lot of respects, they they share so much in terms of uh, the flavor, the lore, the history of the world building, that even though on a game engine it is a little apples and oranges, it makes a lot of sense for them to be seen as sort of a pairing. Got it. Okay. Uh, so we died, we, we dove into the playtest names. Now we'll take a look at the rarity of many cards, which was based on the idea that players would have a limited set of cards in a particular area. 
such that there would only be a few copies of Mox Sapphire and Black Lotus in a particular area, thus naturally restricting the power of these cards. Uh, I'm laughing because the thought of this is very humorous to me. The rapid popularity of the game, however, created a much larger community of players than initially anticipated, making it possible for players to amass large collections of these powerful cards, which essentially means that someone could just go like, I have 20 Black Lotuses, right? And the rest of the... I, don't, I was going to say the rest of the room, but like the rest of this segment of the country doesn't have any. So to circle back to Alpha. Okay. 1,100 rares in circulation. That's, again, not enough... Assume that there were 1,100 watery graves that existed. That would not be enough to run a Grand Prix where Blue Black was popular. No. Much less service the entire customer base of the planet. Yes. So if you go back and you imagine that 1,100 rares are out there, that is actually a meaningful gate. It would be really hard to get a playset of any given rare. It's not even trivial to get a playset of commons. Now the game explodes in popularity. Now you've gone to beta and unlimited there's a lot more of the stuff in circulation the game's a lot more popular something of a secondary market is starting to emerge for some of these cards and then people can actually get many many copies of black lotus or time twister or ancestral recall and the game starts to break down but if you imagine that people can't really get their hands on two or three or four copies of cards then rarity is a meaningful gate uh they just didn't imagine it was going to be this successful but that's a good problem to have. You can fix that over time. Yep. Um, but initially, yeah. Uh, the power level of some of the cards here, once they were released a little bit more wide, did become a bit of an issue. And this is a problem they got to fix them pretty quickly, right? Because we saw the increased increased print runs over the first th these first three sets very quickly. Yes. Right. It's so they they noticed and identified that this was a problem very fast. They just started they started cranking up the print meter basically. Like, let's go. And restricting cards. Yeah. And introducing the four of rule. Yep. Which, again, you can take it for granted now. It was not always a rule of magic. You do not find any mention of it in the alpha rule book because they assumed the size of the print run was effectively going to manage how redundant people's decks could be. Dude, great transition. Uh, the rule limiting decks to a maximum of four copies of any card except for basic lands did not exist in the earliest rules, but was rapidly adopted from tournament play. So there's a couple things going on there. One is just more fun to play with a variety of cards. Sure. Two, even if the, you know, all Black Lotus, Time Twister, Wheel of Fortune, one Fireball deck is not something that you could build, even if you knew about it, uh, people did build decks that were, you know, 18 Mountains, 42 Lightning Bolts. <laughs> that deck's not that bad by the t the sensibilities of the time. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's why you see so many people talk about what was the first Magic deck you built if you're from my era. It's like Plague Rats. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Plague Rats is a lot more powerful if you can play with 40. Yep. It's actually not that much more powerful, but you know, but it's, it, a little you, it's a little more powerful. You can imagine it being yes, powerful. yes. You put in some dark rituals in there. You got a stew going. Oh, I love that. So, it wasn't really a function of people having so many copies of the rares that you know it was kind of the game broke down or whatever. A lot of this manifests at the lower rarities, where even in the alpha beta era, people would get their hands on so many lightning bolts or so many sinkholes that that just became what your deck was, and that's just not very much fun. Uh, under the original rules, this is a fun note, players with less than one life were not considered to have lost until the end of the current phase, giving that player a chance to find a solution. So I want you at home to imagine that you were at negative two after the attack step. Still got some time. Yeah. Still got a little time, I believe. So I know there's a, is a mirror universe? In Legends, yes. Yeah, so okay, there's an interaction there, but I'll let you speak towards this because this is when you were playing. So... I played with this rule set, and 
it actually was the rules for quite a while. Because I remember you could do this with Vampiric Tutor, so we're talking at least visions. Okay. But you could go to zero if you had some way of taking damage or paying life, activate Mirror Universe, and then presumably if your opponent has no way to gain life inside of that phase, that's game. So came up with City of Brass. That was a pretty common one because you would play City of Brass in your four or five color control deck anyway, and then it was a way of winning the game of Mirror Universe. Okay. A couple other ways. I think Fast Bond might have been involved. That was another way that you could do it. But again, a different rule set. Now Magic, is, it looks at a state-based effect. If a player is at zero or less, the game's over. That's just the rule. But back then, you had the opportunity until the end of the phase to clean that up. And it didn't really come up practice until Mirror Universe came along. And then it was a strategy unto itself. Sure. So change that rule. Uh, that is one of many rules that have changed over the over the course of Magic. I can't wait to get to damage on the stack. And Oh, my God. Who knows what else we'll get to as the rules did change over the 30-year history of this wonderful game. Uh, let's talk anti. Mm-hmm. Was an optional part of the game that remained a part of the game until after the Homelands expansion. My only experience with anti, I'm going to use a word I've used in a long time, you remember the game Chandelar? There was anti in that. That's really the old. I never did IRL anti. Do you have any, do you have any IRL anti experience? We played that very sparingly. Okay. I played more than one game for anti, but probably not 10. Okay. So there's some issues with anti. A few, probably. One is it's an expression of fun that is negative. Okay. Most games that you play, you hope that everyone kind of has some sort of like net fun at the end of it. Sure. So maybe some people lose and they uh, kind of have a bad time. But you go, you go play basketball. Some team wins, some team loses. But everyone ran around, made some plays, had a good time. Presumably, that's yes. net fun. Yep. So anti is the opposite of that. In that, if you win a game of anti, you have received a random card. Who knows what the value is or if you even want to play it. Okay. If you lose a game of Ante, you no longer have a deck because now your deck is 59 cards. You don't have a deck anymore. You got to go get something. Okay. It's also the rich get richer because if my deck, if I'm an experienced player, I've been playing for a long time, I am likely to beat you. And also it's more painful if you're newer because you don't have a collection that can replace the cards that you're losing. Multiply all of that by the fact that the Ante cards, some of them at least, might be the most powerful cards in the set. We talk about Black Lotus Ancestral Recall. You want to argue about which one of those is stronger? You know, it depends, time and place, whatever. They're both weaker than Contract from Below. Contract from Below is just Black, draw seven. (laughs) Put another card in the ante. Well, I'm not going to lose. I just (laughs) drew seven cards for one mana. So it's really problematic, and it's not surprising to me that this quickly got de-emphasized. Even though Ante itself, they continue to print cards, I think all the way up to Homelands, that was the last set that had Ante in it. Uh, Correct. It wasn't common, at least in my experience, to go to a local card shop and see people playing for anti. Most people just ignored it. Say so, spur of the moment idea. I know that money drafting is kind of dead now. Mm-hmm. What if we? Is, do you think we can resuscitate anti at events? Let's just do that. The problem is that uh, I think you could do it if, if the rule is like, okay, everyone's got to put up a card that's worth twenty dollars. If yeah. you just will use it as a proxy for cash. I think that's fine. Okay. The problem is losing a card out of your deck is so much more painful than the costs of the card because you might be sentimentally attached. It, at, at this time, with the print runs being so small, you might not be able to replace it. Like, imagine you lose your Shivan Dragon and you're playing Alpha. You There might not be another person in your state that has a Shivan Dragon. That just might be it. Yeah, that's true. So it's not a good idea. Even if you 
had some 2023 game design sensibilities about it, it would still be a bad idea. But going back into time, it was really rough. Sure. And just not a common way that the game got played. Uh, we're going to talk now a little less about Anti and a little more about artifacts. Uh, the three different types of artifacts that did occur in ABU. There were mono artifacts. Uh, these artifacts have activated abilities that can only be used once and require tapping the artifact when used. These now have been errated. They now have the tap symbol to signify the activation cost. Examples include all of the moxes, soul ring, ice manipulator, black lotus, whatever. So there's a question. Why would you do this instead of putting the tap symbol on it? Because they had the tap symbol at this point. I don't know. Because it can, it creates confusion with creatures. Because they want artifacts to have haste. You can tap your mox or your ice manipulator, the turn it gets played. But your creatures, your birds of paradise, has to wait a turn. Has summoning symbol. So they didn't put the, I'm assuming, I don't know for sure, but I would assume they didn't put the tap symbol on the artifacts because they thought it would engender confusion with the fact that they have pseudo haste, activated okay. haste, okay. and that creatures don't. Okay. That, I'd buy that. I'd buy that. Uh, there are poly artifacts. They have activated abilities that did not require tapping as part of the activation cost and could be used multiple times. Examples include Force Field, Wooden Sphere, Crystal Rod, Soul Net. I think that's pretty straightforward. We still kind of see artifacts like that today. Yeah, just anything that you can use multiple times or doesn't require mana or just sits there doing something. And then there were continuous artifacts. They have a continuous effect that did not require activation. Under the original rules of the game... These were turned off when they were tapped, and under modern rules, this only occurs if stated in the card's rules text. So for you vintage cubers out there like myself, I'm sure you've seen on Howling Minor Winter Orb that the effect is shut off when those cards are tapped. On uh, Sunglasses of Urza, a Patrick Sullivan favorite, and Meekstone, um, those are other examples of continuous artifacts that they work when they're untapped, they don't work when they're tapped. And I think the reason to have that design space or to make that part of the mechanic, is again, the idea of this game is Dungeons and Dragons. And there is a concept of artifacts being inert, of being able to be shut off. So you might ask yourself, why would they bother with this rule that really only affects like Icy Manipulator and Twiddle? Sure. It's, not, it's not like there's a lot of artifact tapping going on in the set, yep. but it was expression of flavor of the idea that this thing could be shut off and its powers turned off as, you know, a D&D trope. You're going to be interrupted by me and fellow interrupts. That is a thing, by the way. Interrupts were a card type. Uh, they were like modern instants, only faster. Bang. This meant that when an interrupt was played, only other interrupts could be played in response. The timing rules of interrupts required a rata for some cards, such as Red Elemental Blast, for them to work properly under these rules. Simply put, these were a mess. Oh, yeah. How do these even work? You want me to go through it? To the best of your ability. Okay, so there's another layer on top of that, which is mana source. Okay. Mana source is the fastest. There's not, you can't you can't you can't do faster than that. Okay. okay. I believe it appears on Dark Ritual. Yep. And then it's a game rule associated with lands. Okay. So mana source is the fastest thing. Yep. You cannot counterspell Dark Ritual in the rules of Alpha. Okay. Uh you know, very quickly got to the point where all this was collapsed in an instance they cleaned up the rules. Interrupts, largely seen on counterspells. I don't know if there's an example of a non-counterspell interrupt in Alpha. Okay. Uh, so interrupt basically signals, this is fast enough to counter an interrupt. You can counterspell a counterspell. Yep. And certainly you can counter any instant. Instant is basically something that can be played when the stack is empty on either turn, assuming that a mana source or interrupt is not on the stack. 
Got it. Okay. Good explanation. The rules are relatively similar to what they are now. In practice, there are some edge cases where counter spells basically act as split second, where you can't respond with your instant. There's some, you know, lighty bolt giant growth kind of exchanges where someone has a counter spell. It is very, very different. Yeah. The rules aren't actually very different in a practical sense, but it is nonsense to have three different speeds of instant. One, which is super instant, which is actually not the fastest instant. That's just the second fastest one. Sure. Mana yeah. source is the, fastest, the fastest one. one. They yeah. clean all this up pretty quickly. But if you played back then, you might know, you know, someone dark rituals to pay the upkeep on the demonic hordes. Can't counterspell that. Came up from time to time. And my last fact of the set. Walls. The only creature type with the rule associated with it in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. They can't attack. Now, this got changed in Kamigawa Block when walls were given a rata to have the defender ability, and we still see walls today in 2023 in sets. They all have defender. Yeah, if I had one sort of macro critique of the file, it would be that there's a lot of damn walls in the set. <laughs> like, for the needs of the game engine, the fact that creatures are terrible, and it's <laughs> just so easy to just to block all day anyway. Sure. The fact that there's, like, seven walls that nothing can attack past, not even the rarest, I would probably go back in time and change a little bit of that. Okay. But at the time, they were kind of appealing cards. Sure. Like a wallstone in 08. It's huge. What are you going to do about that? Yeah. That's the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. Uh, one final note here, as the facts are done, but there is a unique little addition within these sets, which is there was a collector's edition, um, which the collector's edition was a special commemorative edition of beta cards released on December 10th, 1993. I know what you're all thinking. A collector's edition. We've never seen that before. That's right. We never a set of proxies. That's that wouldn't. That's not a thing. Different backs. Yeah. That's that would never happen, except in 1993. That's that's the only time it's ever happened before. Thirteen thousand five hundred copies were produced by Wizards of the Coast. Five thousand of them were printed as the international collector's edition. Some of which were sold in the U.S. and Canada to make up for the shortage uh, in the regular print fall. Uh, excuse me, the regular print run. And the remainder sold overseas. The difference between the international and domestic versions is international edition says international edition on the back of the card. Cards have square corners and a gold border on the back. They're not legal for DCI sanctioned tournaments. Crazy they would print something that's not legal. That's a collector's edition that's not legal for tournaments. Well, you know, the cards can be cool to look at. I mean, what was the MSRP on these things? 50 bucks? Uh, 50 bucks for every card in beta? I can't imagine it was much more. I don't have I don't have a price breakdown on my on my info sheet. I don't know if you just want to look at the cards. You, you know, you can't play with them in tournaments. You just want to look at the cards. Fifty dollars for the entire set. It's a reasonable price. It's not bad. Yeah, it's a reasonable price. Now, rumor has it that you might have a collector's edition card. I have one. I'll show the audience. It's international edition. Okay. Now I got a turn because I think I might have put it behind me here okay. on the bookshelf. Go ahead. I see it. I see it. I did. Here we go. So this is my one international edition card. If you haven't seen this before. This is a Mox Pearl, and you can see the square borders here. It's pretty easy to tell. Someone play this uh, against you in a tournament, you'd probably be able to tell by the corners. But if you can't, the back, gold border, and it says International Edition. There you go. So you, look at you. How much is that thing worth? I don't know. I would guess 800 bucks a K, really? something like that. I mean, people love these things for cube. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, no, that makes you sense. You know, you want a black border. I mean, they're cheaper than than normal boxes, right? Yeah, and if it's in a sleeve, you don't see the front, so it doesn't really matter. Right. Okay, I'd buy it. I'd buy it. Well, guess what? That and those are the facts of Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. When we do come back, we are going to dive into the 
flavor and storyline of this set. There's a lot going on there. See you in a sec. It is now time to dissect the flavor and storyline of Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. Kind of a new thing that we're going to do on the show, right? Because one thing about Magic that they have definitely leaned into, which is the Ghost, is they're like telling pretty engaging stories now in all their sets. You know, the recent, most recent one is Rise of the, uh, not Rise of the Eldrazi. Uh, Frexy All Will Be One, right? They're, they're telling stories with Elish Norn and all these prayers and everything else. However, that's not the case with this initial set of Magic the Gathering cards. There is no specific storyline. Although the cards have a lot of flavor built into them and they're doing some minor world building, it's not near to the degree that we're seeing in Magic sets over the past, I'd say, five, six, seven years. Flavor text in the cards describe the characters of many people and places of Dominaria and elsewhere, and names were established in Alpha that were expanded upon later, like Urza, like Mishra. But for the most part, this set is just Dungeons & Dragons cards, basically. So there are no legends before legends existed as a mechanic. Okay. There's no protagonist that's really described. You are the main character, and you are sort of exploring Dominaria, which is this Dungeons & Dragons sort of inspired world. So there is no flavor in terms of what's the story here. There really isn't one. There's a world, you're a planeswalker, you fight other planeswalkers, but you're sort of just observing the creatures and, and different spells and whatnot. But there is definitely flavor inside of that. Sure. For example, you can look at names like Banalish Hero and Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, Mons Goblin Raiders. These are names that suggest a town, a city, a place in the world. So what I love about that is one, it just makes the cards a little have a little bit more personality, even if there isn't flavor as such in the set. And two, you start building up the world. So that's a place you can go back to. Now you've made Banalashiro. Now you have the notion of Banalia. And there's a lot of things you can do with that name. And Magic has done that for forever. Still reference Banalia even up to today. There is also flavor, I would argue, in the way that the rarity is executed and the sense of you as a Dungeons & Dragons campaigner. For example, you look at Sea Serpent. Sea Serpent's a common, and it has island home, which means it dies, you don't have an island. So Sea Serpent's huge, but it is essentially just a common animal you find in the world, and if it doesn't have access to water, it dies. That's a pretty easy story to follow. Now let's look at some of the rares. Lord of the Pit, Demonic Hordes, Force of Nature. They all have pretty arduous upkeep costs, and if you don't pay the upkeep cost, they don't die. They do something bad to you. Okay, that conveys a sense of you trying to contain or corral this sort of demonic presence in the case of the Blackheart or this sort of elemental of green energy in the case of Force of Nature. Sure. That they themselves are sort of autonomous creatures. They aren't upkeep costs that if you don't pay, they go away. They punish you if you do something bad. So there's a sense from Sea Serpent, which is this thing needs water to survive up to the rares that are about, well, you're sort of trying to struggle to contain this terrible monster that you've summoned and try to fight off your opponent, that does convey something about, yeah, there's sea serpents all over the place and they're just kind of normal creatures. But there's not like a lot of force in nature. And if you summon one of them in a fight, you are risking yeah, uh, yeah. being killed by your own summon. So all that I would say is an expression of flavor, even if it isn't Mishra versus Urza or Elish Norn versus or Emrakul versus. There is a story being told there, but it's discrete, one-to-one -one kind of cards 
and not trying to convey something about the world necessarily. It's interesting. I never looked at it that way. I, I study this all the time. I can I tell. Go, I go back and I read really this file. I really can tell. It is brilliant. I, and I mean, I, it, Alpha is better as a card file than many sets that came after it. This thing is very clearly a labor of love. There's a there's an understanding. I don't know if it's an understanding or just a brilliant intuition about game design. The way the rarities are executed in the set is better than many sets that come after it. And the way that sort of tone about the world is conveyed through names and through rarities is also brilliant, even though it doesn't have the same sort of story building that we associate with modern Magic the Gathering sets. Well, that does it for our flavor and storyline aspect of the show. As we get into more episodes and more expansions, this section of the show is going to be significantly longer, I would say, because, again, they've done a great job of world building and designing legends and all these other things that we have grown accustomed to over the 30 years of Magic. But to kick things off with ABU, there's not a ton of it. But what I can tell you is there are a ton of mechanics that we're going to go over in just a bit. Now, it is time for an aspect of the show that we used to do before. And we're doing it again. But this time it's like a little different. Here's why. In the sets that we covered previously on the podcast version of the show, we were jumping around. You know, we were going to Cold Snap and, you know, Kanza Tarkir, I think we did at some point, Shards of Alar and all this other stuff, right? And all those sets are built around specific mechanics. But when you're talking about Magic's first set, I wouldn't say that it's built around a specific mechanic. Again, if, you, if we just look at Phyrexia All Will Be One, it's like built around Toxic and it's built around oil counters and some other things going on there, right? And that's kind of the framework for the set. And you can look into the framework for a ton of sets. When you look at the first one, the mechanics aren't building the framework. The mechanics are building the game about what these cards do, what these creatures do that are not just making them all vanilla creatures, right? So this set, Alpha Beta Unlimited, all three, I guess, technically, this introduces kind of the foundation for the game. So the first ones we're going to talk about here, Trample, Protection, Landwalk, Flying, Regeneration, First Strike, and Banding. Now that last one, Banding, we're going to save for last because there's a lot going on there. But I know you wanted to break down Trample, Protection, Landwalk, Flying, and Regeneration to kick things off. It's kind of their, I guess they're all kind of related to one another, even though it doesn't seem like they are. So what's interesting about all these keywords mechanics is they're all on creatures. Okay. Everything here is about creatures and creature combat. And I think that's pretty revealing because what is a structural sort of flaw or challenge with Magic's game engine? I would argue that if we're just sort of playing creatures, it quickly gets to the point where neither player can profitably attack because the defending player is advantaged in a number of respects. The attacking player has to commit their attackers before the blocking player has to block. The blocking player also can double block or triple block. These are all things that cause, if I have some 2-2s and some 3-3s, and you have some 2-2s and some 3-3s, and I attack, I get blown out. And if you attack, you get blown out. Okay. So a lot of the keywords that you're seeing here, trample, protection, certainly flying, land walk, regeneration, kind of arguably, they all help to allow someone to continue to attack even if the opposing player has creatures out. So I would argue that some of what's going on here is also about flavor. Part of flying's brilliance is it's so easy to understand. You could show that to someone who doesn't even play magic, they would probably be able to guess what was implied by it. And it also serves a mechanical need. Trample, maybe the story is a little bit more vague, but it's much the same thing. It's an easy story to tell. 
and it helps the attacking player continue to attack even if the board starts to bog down a little bit. Okay. And why I'm critical about some of the other mechanics that we're about to talk about is because it cuts in the other direction. So let's talk about one of those. First strike. I know you're not particularly fond of this, and I will say, I know some things you're going to touch on here, first strike has been somewhat minimized over the years, and now we're seeing, and I'm even thinking of a card, there's a common in the new um, Phyrexia all one set that only first strike when attacking. So not first strike on defense. And over my years of competitive play, certainly when you were doing limited formats and stuff like that, first strike was like a premium effect because it was great on offense and great on defense. So let's talk about that. So I like first strike while attacking. And I like first strike as an, a trick on an instant, as okay. like a one-shot sort of whatever. But I don't like it as a base keyword that appears on creatures very often. And that is because it is something that exacerbates the issues around the defending player being advantaged. Let's imagine I have a 2-2 first striker, and you have three 2-2s. Yep. I attack with my 2-2 first striker. What happens? Um, I'm either not blocking or I'm like double blocking or triple blocking. Right. Okay. Now, what happens if I leave it back to block? I can't attack. So it's plainly more powerful on defense than offense. I know it kind of cuts the other way some amount of the time. Same way that protection from color cuts the other way some amount of the time. But we are looking at two keywords there that over time have become de-emphasized. Yeah. You see a lot less creatures that have base protection from color, although you see it on one-shot tricks some amount of the time. You don't see a whole lot of creatures that just have base first strike, although you see it as a trick some amount of the time and on the you know first strike while attacking sort of designs. But those uh, keywords, protection from color and first strike, had been de-emphasized because they exacerbate the problem of it's too powerful to be defending. That makes sense. So now let's get into the tough one. Let's get into the tricky one. That I and my 24, 25-ish years of magic still don't really know how it works. Okay, so banning is not great. Okay. How I much... actually don't know how it works. Okay, how much you want me to get into it? It's up to your discretion. Okay, so first of all, what you have to understand about banning is the rules on offense and defense completely different. Not a great start. So when you attack with a band, you're allowed to have any number of creatures with banding can be in a band, along with up to one non-banding creature. So you can attack with a banalish hero and a gray ogre, but you can't attack with a banalish hero and two gray ogres. Okay. The band is considered to have any keyword, like flying or first strike, if all creatures in the band share it. So if you band two copies of Maze of Pegasus together, I think that's the one one flying with banding. Okay. And you attack with both of them together. The band has flying, can only be blocked by a creature flying. If you have two Mega Pegasus and a Grey Ogre, your banding can be blocked by a non-flyer. Because the Grey Ogre doesn't have flying. All right. So okay. now we're so we're through that. Okay. Now what actually happens is when the defending player blocks your band, instead of them assigning damage, you get to break it up however you want to. So if you attack with three two twos with banding and you block with a 3-3, three, three, I go 1-1-1. One, one, one. So your thing dies and nothing oh, happens. Oh, so you get to decide their combat damage? Right. Oh, okay. Okay, so that gets us now to defense. Okay. Which is a blocking band only needs to have one creature with banding on it. So you can block with a Banal Shiro and four Grey Ogres. That's a blocking band. Okay. Same rule with keywords. Same rule with you split up the damage. So, okay, let's talk about a couple problems here with banding. One is like, okay, that rule set is just wild. You'd never do that on a common. That's that's absurd. But also, 
it's so much more powerful on blocking than attacking. (laughs) Because again, you have the out with uh, someone attacks you with a band of just saying no blocks. Sure, sure. Or you have a wall. Maybe it can maybe has enough power to block the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you attack into someone with a banning creature and they're getting annihilated, you it, it's just chump attacks. It's chump attacks all the way down. You never deal any damage. You get to a side. You get to a side when you block, right? Right. Your so stuff. you attack with your six six, and yeah. I block with a band of six two twos, and I'm like one 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 one. Yeah, okay. it's all dead. Okay. So not only is it complicated, okay, obviously, but also it really advantages the defending player. And it's in a way that doesn't make any sense at all. Yep. So it's not great. And it's not surprising to me that this one got uh, kicked to the curb much faster than even Protection from Gullet or First Strike or many of the other (laughs) ones that are a little on the problematic side. This is horrible. Um, Again, I try not to be critical of the elements of Alpha that I don't like because... It's such a masterpiece. It's the first set. They're not going to get everything right. And yeah. this is, it's evocative, I guess, if you kind of understand how it works. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to do this again. All right. So um, this is my first petition on the show. Okay. Um, you know how they make these remastered sets? It's bri- That's an excuse to bring it back. You can bring it back in a remastered set. Yeah. So last uh, week, I was I did a lot of drafting of Dominaria Remastered. Okay. Uh, including with Ben Lundquist, who was the design lead on that set. And I didn't think to mention where's Banalish Hero, but going back into time, maybe I maybe I should have. Benny, we know Benny's watching. You just need one creature with banding. That's it. One creature with banding is also really funny because then it can only work on defense. You like basically can't attack with it. Yes. So you only get to see what it's actually there for, which is did you attack with your uh you know, your fire elemental? It's dead. Nothing of mine is dead. Do you want to try that again? What do you think is gonna have a next turn? I do not. Yeah, I'm gonna play another two two. And that's going to absorb another eight power worth of attackers from you because that's how banding works. Uh, banding rules, and now there's going to be a shirt in the works. Yeah, for banding. Yeah, there needs to be one. Uh, let's talk about non-keyword mechanics. There are four in this set. Uh, Defender, Fear, Reach, and Vigilance. Cards of these mechanics have since been retroactively errated. So these are these are mechanics that exist now in the game, but on the cards in Alpha Beta Unlimited, they didn't have these words. So... Example, walls, none of them say defender. They all say defender now. They've been errated. Okay, great. Reach, we all know what that is. Vigilance, we all know what that is. Fear, okay, can only be blocked by black creatures and artifact creatures. Right, and that uh, the, these keyword mechanics at least appear on fear itself. Giant spider, Sarah Angel. There are some examples of these yep. uh, littered throughout the file, but they were not key to word initially. They were just spelled out. But they were in the game, and they still remain in some form or fashion in the game. Fear is the one that's fallen off the most. It's kind of switched to intimidate now. Yeah. Um, the issue with fear, I think, is that it's just too much of a binary. That okay. it does everything or nothing. Sure. Intimidate's kind of the same thing in terms of breaking up stalls, but it's a little bit more dynamic about how likely it is you could block something over the course of a certain game. I know they don't do skulk very much, but again, much the same thing of it's not yes or no, it's more it depends. Yep. And the creature keywords that are just yes or no evasive, they do a lot less of protection from color is that, uh, original fear, land walking, it's all, you know, all or nothing. And they've moved much more, and I think correctly into, it's confusing, who knows, depends what cards I draw, et cetera, et cetera. So those in mechanics, both keyword and non-keyworded, but also when you're establishing a brand new game and establishing creature types, anything can be anything. It's Dungeons and Dragons. It is. It is. So what I have in front of me on my notes here is the list of every creature type in Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited, 
And one of the things that folks always enjoyed about the podcast and when we were working together in the broadcast booth is I would just spring things on you and see if you could answer those questions. And you know what? I'm going to say, even though I don't have like a running tally or anything, more often than not, you kind of crushed it. You did pretty good when I would just spring things on you didn't see coming. So even though this is a recorded show, there's a lot of post-production, all this stuff, he doesn't know sometimes some of the things I'm going to spring on him. So I'm going to go over the creature types and then some creature types have been errated. I'm going to see if he can name the card that has been changed, okay? Okay. So, long list, bear with me. Angel, assassin, basilisk, bear, bodyguard, changed to human. Veteran bodyguard. Okay. Cleric, clone, changed to shapeshifter. Clone. That's correct. Cockatrice, demon, jinn, doppelganger, changed to shapeshifter. Vesuvian doppelganger. I believe that is correct. Dragon, dwarf, elemental, elf, enchantress, changed to human druid. Verdurin enchantress. I believe that is correct. Fairy, force, changed to elemental. Force of nature. That is correct. Fungusaur, changed to fungus dinosaur. Fungusaur. That is correct. Gaia's liege, changed to avatar. Gaia's liege. That is correct. This is this what this one's pretty. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> Gargoyle. Ghoul, changed to zombie. Scavenging ghoul? That is correct. Giant, goblin, goblin king, changed to goblin lord. Goblin king. That is correct. Hero, changed to human soldier. Analysis hero? Confirming. That is correct. Okay. 1-1. One, one. I like how it says in the card, bands. Oh, yeah. Not banding. Band. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's like five pages in the rule book. Don't worry about it. Are you attacking? All right, all your things are dead. Should have done that. Should have <laughs> done that. Have done that. Hydra, Imp, Knight, Lion, changed to Cat. Savannah Lion. Correct. Lord, Lord of Atlantis, changed to Merfolk Lord. Lord of Atlantis. That is correct. Mammoth, changed to Elephant. War Mammoths? Confirming that. That is correct. One of the first cards that got me to play Magic. Yeah, it's awesome. Mana bird, changed to bird. Birds of paradise. Correct. Merfolk, minotaur, nightmare, nymph, changed to dryad. Oh, wow. Is that Shinon and dryads? What color is that? Green. One, one forest walk? Uh, I think that's I right. I think we skipped it. Got it. Well done. Well done. Okay. Um, I got... History lesson. Read a book. <laughs> Read a book. Ogre, orc, paladin, changed to knight. Northern Paladin. Correct. Pegasus. Phantasm. Changed to Illusion. Oh. I know this one. Uh, is it Phantasmal Image? Phantasmal Forces. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Do you know what that card does? 4-1 Flyer for blue and three. Upkeep of a blue. And? Uh, What? Yeah, I said 4-1 Flyer. Oh, okay. I didn't use yeah, 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 Okay. Yeah. No, okay. you're good. You're good. You're good. Okay. Um, rat, rock, serpent, shade, shadow, change to spirit. Uh, nether shadow? Uh, that is correct. Ship, change to human pirate. Pirate ship. Correct. Skeleton, specter, spider, tree folk, troll, unicorn, vampire, wall, and the last one for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through the rest and then come back. Wizard, wolf, wraith, worm, zombie, and the last one. Will of the wisp. Change will, to spirit. Will of the wisp. That is correct. Well done. Well done. I'd say... I think you got like all the one. Yeah, fifth out of the fourth. Yeah, that okay. was pretty good. That's pretty good for the spring of the game on you. 
Uh, those are the mechanics of Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. We are going to be transitioning into the cycles of Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. We got some horizontal ones, we got some vertical ones, and we got to talk about Ancestral Recall, which is part of one heck of a cycle, right after this. It's my favorite time. This is my favorite part of all the shows we did. I know a lot of people like the award show. Facts of the set are kind of whatever. That's kind of laying the foundation for what we're doing. Mechanics, depending on what they are, is fun. But for me, it's always the cycles. I love the cycles of a set. I like watching the design teams try to figure out a cycle, design a cycle, complete a cycle, whatever. And cycles are kind of the hallmark of sets to me because, you know, there's always like a worst one. There's always a best one, all that stuff. I love cycles. They give said structure. Yes. And when we're talking about cycles that go across a block, they give a sense of anticipation. Yep. I think Ravnica block, for example, the first time oh. they printed, you know, Sacred Foundry and Temple Garden, you were thinking, what's the name of the other ones going to be? What are the guild mages going to do? Yep. Right. The cycles help sort of lay down that foundation. And even if you're not doing that sort of payoff, it is a lot of structure inside the set itself. Everybody wants to know what the land, what the, what's the land cycle going to be for the next set, right? That's like the question everyone asks all the time is what are the new rare cycle or new uncommon land cycle going to be cycles rule now we gotta because we're starting this show over from the very beginning here with this episode one that you're watching let's 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 define a couple things what's a horizontal cycle a horizontal cycle is a cycle that runs this way so it means flat across rarity okay for example let's imagine ancestral recall was a common okay ancestral recall howling uh uh, Dark Ritual, Giant Growth, Lightning Bolt, Healing Salve. Yep. They're all one, do threes, and they all appear at common in this theoretical. That's a horizontal cycle. Okay. What's a vertical cycle? A vertical cycle is common, uncommon, rare. Okay. So I'm trying to think of an example for that in Alpha. I guess you could argue the red three mana tutus. Yeah, we got some trolls and stuff. Yeah, that sort of scales up in a way that I would argue is a bit of a vertical cycle, but there isn't really a lot of vertical cycles in this set. Okay. It's a lot of horizontal, a lot of, I, I maybe you could even call it checkerboard. I don't know where, where well, how exactly you would describe the cycles that are, a, you know, four commons and a rare. Sure. Like, what does that mean exactly? Sure. But it's mostly horizontal in the set. We're going to start with the most simple of horizontal cycles. We've talked about the basic lands a bunch. You had to have them a lot in booster packs and everything just to get them into the infrastructure of the game. It's arguably Magic's first cycle. Yep. Plains, Island, Swamp, Mountain, Forest. Gotta have them. And another part of the value of doing cycles in your first set is it is an expression of the color pie. It helps express to players what each of the colors are going to be about. Now, with the basic lands, even there's something there, right? Because with a Plains, Forest, Island, Mountain, Swamp, you start thinking of the types of weather that you experience in those different environments. You start thinking about the types of creatures you know, fish or in a D&D &D setting, dwarves or, you know, random soldiers you might see on the plains or whatever, evil creatures that are inhabiting the swamp. So it does a really good job of uh, laying down the expression of what the colors are going to be about, both mechanically and with the flora and fauna you should expect to see across the colors. Let's talk about another land cycle here, the dual lands. You have the ally colored ones in Tundra, Underground Sea, Badlands, Taiga, and Savannah. And then the enemy color ones in Scrubland, Bayou, Plateau, Tropical Island, and in Beta and Unlimited, Volcanic Island. In Alpha, no, wasn't in there. Uh, ten rare lands with two basic land types and arguably the best lands of all time? I think so, in terms of multicolor lands. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you can do better than the originals. Okay. Nor should you. And you know what? 
all the art on those cards is good, and they just look awesome as game pieces, in my opinion. I think they're just really good-looking cards. Yeah, I loved... I mean, when I was a kid, again, I started with Revise, so a little bit later, but the first cards that I just collected were Dual Lands because of the swirly yeah, yeah, treatment the inside the text box. Yeah. Another really good example of, of rarity sort of informing what you can do with the file. The game breaks down pretty fast if everyone has 40 Dual Lands. Sure. Uh, especially when we're talking about a time before Wasteland, Price of Progress, things that punish people for it. And a lot of the first magic decks are littered with just a ton of dual lands. But again, if people don't have very large collections, if the red black player has one bad lands in their deck, who really cares? The stuff really only starts to break down when we're talking about complete collections and play sets of everything. And that really wasn't a consideration at the time. So even though these are strictly better than basic lands in the set, there's nothing that punishes non-basic lands. I guess you could kind of argue land walk is that sort of thing, but not really. Um, it doesn't really matter because you just assume people don't have a lot of copies of these cards. Uh, speaking of cards that people don't have a lot of copies of, Moxes, mm -hmm. Pearl, Sapphire, Jet, Ruby, Emerald. Each of these rare artifacts is a mana cost of zero, taps for a color of mana. It's another, it's another, excuse me, horizontal cycle. And another indicator that the people working on this game were a lot smarter about power level than they get credit for. Uh, again, it's a different time. You couldn't do cards powerful of the Moxes now because players would just be upset there's an understanding of how strong they are but at the time it's a mystery you know the average player who starts playing magic probably doesn't have an appreciation for it you talk to old school players all the time who talk about trading their mox ruby for a shivan dragon yep. it wasn't like they were ruinous to the games at that time even though they look like basic lands they appear rare the people making this game understood that these cards were pretty busted yep. but again if you just assume one person in your play group has a Mox Emerald in their deck full of unplayable green creatures. This is not doesn't really matter all that much. And also this sort of stuff, again, to go back to Dungeons and Dragons, it conveys a tone. There are really rare and powerful artifacts that literally the universe. Not everyone has them. Not everyone is fully equipped. But in your travels throughout the world of Dominaria, you might encounter a planeswalker who's acquired one of these very powerful artifacts. And again, it sets the tone for what the world looks like. Yeah, and I think it does a nice job of setting the tone. Yeah, I and did. the pieces of art are just beautiful and iconic. And Let's get to some fun ones. Okay. Let's get to the laces. Pure lace, thought lace, death lace, chaos lace. Changing colors. And life lace. Each of these rare instants permanently changes the color of a permanent. That's blue now. That's green. That's white. I think moon lace... Uh, like single blue I think that thing changes things to colorless it's like a Greg, Greg Hatch special first of many Greg Hatch shout outs on this show uh, to be sure um, this is a horizontal cycle these cards aren't particularly good they're flavorful-ish I feel like you're supposed to do one of these okay I would also argue these are not particularly flavorful okay so you have some anti-color stuff that goes on the set we'll get to more of it later but it is through the tone of what's the color pie what uh, colors are allied and enemied with other colors, which was a bigger part of the architecture back then. Five of these is really, really weird. So, I mean, I can, I guess I can understand why they would make five because you're trying to fill out the file and it just feels like if we make one, it's very easy to just go, but let's make a blue one, let's make a red one, let's make a green one. And then just, okay, that's five cards and then the set is complete. And a lot of the rares in alpha are, I don't know again about intentionality, but you look at them and they're, they sort of, get the imagination going. What could I do with this? Sure. Is a lot of what's going on there. And the laces are, unfortunately, they're too narrow and too weak, and you can't really build around them because they don't even come up in 
uh, all the games, even if you build your deck around them. But there is a little turning of the wheels of, what would I do with this thing? What are some cool things to switch around? So, again, I wouldn't do five of these going back in time, but there is room for a little bit of this in the set, I think. Uh, Lucky Charms, Ivory Cup, Crystal Rod, Throne of Bone, Iron Star, and Wooden Spear. Each of these uncommon artifacts is a triggered ability that allows the controller to pay one mana to gain one life when a spell of a given color is cast. So, can I tell you my Wizards of the Coast uh, Throne of Bone story here? I would love that to happen. So, Throne of Bone is the black one in the cycle. Yes. And many years ago, I sent an email to uh, Wizards customer support asking, um, does Soul Kanar the Swamp King from Legends, Yep. does it have that mechanic? Because Soul Kanar is whenever a player plays a black spell again in life. Okay. I go, does Soul Kanar have that text box because he is the king of the swamp and therefore resides on a throne of bone? <laughs> and the reply I got was, how drunk were you when you wrote this? from Wizards' official, like, customer support line. So, there so, you go. So your question is still unanswered, is what it sounds it's like. It's unanswered, and I don't even know who answered. Because <laughs> it was, like, you know, signed Wizards. Signed Wizards' customer support, support. <laughs> you're not the person. Exactly. No, but seriously, the man needs an answer. Yeah, and I wasn't drunk. I was genuinely curious. I thought about this for a long it's time. Could you talk to someone on the Legends team? I think it's a pretty valid so it question. Makes sense. Yeah, that's a valid right. question. And I obviously am a historian about this period of magic, design, and development. And like this set. Yeah. This is all you here. So right. you have some questions that need answering. Yeah, I know. It's just, And just to be condescended to by someone in the customer service department, never read a book. Life does not, doesn't, doesn't respect the craft like this. Little disappointing, but life goes on. You know what? This is an opportunity for them to redeem themselves. Talk to me. They're Go watching. ask someone on the Legends team. Let me know. Basic Mountain on Twitter. Not hard to find. Uh, what do we think about these Lucky Charms? Uh, super appealing. Okay. There is a little, I would say there's a little bit of weirdness insofar as gaining life on artifacts when gaining life is pied out to certain colors is a little bit of blurring the lines a little bit. I think it's fine for artifacts to do some of that kind of stuff. And again, these are sort of magical objects. It's fine for them to bleed the color pie sort of in terms of tone and world building. These were so popular. I mean, again, I started playing Revised. I, I love these when I was young. Yeah, they're they're super appealing. They're super simple. And uh, it's not surprising that Magic continues to make variations of these kind of cards, typically more powerful, but variations of this sort of design space because new players, novice players, they just love this, love it. Not only are they simple and easy to understand, but for these particular five, and this speaks more to these as opposed to the newer versions of these type of cards, they just look cool. Yeah, these old ones like throw the bone and, and wooden sphere. Like I can see the wooden sphere artwork and the iron star artwork in my in my head right now. Like they just look kind of cool. They have the the same sort of treatment as the moxes do, where they have the image of the object and the background is sort of this abstract. Again, it feels like you're opening up a manual in a Dungeons and Dragons book. Yeah, you're pouring through pages of of artwork. Um, and and to piggyback on that a little bit, the artist for Lord of the Pit, there's like a little weird icon in the corner. And someone asked, why was there this weird icon in the corner? And the artist said it just looked like something that would appear in a Dungeons & Dragons manual. That's why it's there. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, top-down cycle. Before we get to this top-down cycle, what's top-down mean? Top-down means, so back up, two concepts in game design, top-down, bottom-up, Yep. in the way that you design cards. Bottom-up means we start from what are the mechanical needs of this card or this set or this file? And then how can we build a story on top of it? So we need a flying creature for limited. Well, what things can fly? Birds, dragons, whatever. 
Uh, so a bottom, a bottom up design, for example, would be we need a flyer. Okay, we'll make this blue flyer a bird. Top down is the opposite, where you start from the concept and build out the mechanics from there. So to an example of top down design is what's a dragon do? All right, what do you think about a dragon? You think about it flying. You think about it being huge. You think about it breathing fire. And there you go, you get to Shiv and Dragon. Okay. Okay. Well, we've got a top-down cycle to go through here. Island Sanctuary, Stasis, Word of Command, Sedge Troll, Birds of Paradise. Each of these rare cards were designed in the last minute before the release of Alpha, and they were never play-tested and were just assigned pieces of unused artwork. So Birds of Paradise, a magic staple that's been around for the beginning of the game and still sees play today, just kind of an accident. So you, I never knew this until you talked to me about this earlier, and it's interesting because you can kind of tell there's something weird going on with these designs. Okay. You have Birds of Paradise, which is a five-color nod in a set that really isn't about five colors. Even if you go back and look at the green cards, now some of the artifacts allow you to convert colors of mana and the mox exists, but if you look at green, you have Guy's Liege, Force of Nature, Land of War Elves, Wild Growth. There's such an emphasis on green mana, green mana, green mana. Even Aspect of the Wolf, I would argue, is that sort of thing. So a five-color enabler, super cool, awesome design, obviously, but kind of out of place with the way that green is in the remainder of Alpha. You have Island Sanctuary, probably the worst design in the set. Okay. Horrendous. Okay. Basically, a player plays Island Sanctuary, and then it's known immediately whether or not that player wins or loses the game based on just casting on sanctuary okay. not great stasis not great i was gonna say stasis is the worst as i but i defer to you Sets troll is i would know i would argue i would argue island sanctuary is worse because if we play a game with just i have 10 packs you have 10 packs we play a game what happens is i cast stasis and i kept i upkeep stasis for a little while maybe it's boring and then stasis goes away once you're talking about larger card pools, stasis starts becoming really bad in the way that I, I think you're implying. If we play a game with 15 packs and I cast Island Sanctuary, a good percentage of the time, you literally can't beat Island Sanctuary with the cards that you have in your entire collection. Okay. And the times where it's not that, it's just irrelevant. You lose the game Doesn't because do anything. you're upkeeping it the whole game and then you play a Sarah Angel and kill me with it. Sure. Really bad design. Okay. So we have stasis and Island Sanctuary, really trouble. We have Birds of Paradise, five-color nod in a set that really doesn't have that going on anywhere else. Sedge Troll is the only card in the set that is about two-color decks, besides the dual lands, which I think are sort of sort of architecturally basic enough to the game engine that it's sort of its own thing. Sedge Troll says if you control a Swamp, plus one, plus one, and black regenerates. There is no other card in the set, I believe, that is mana color A, and references mana color B in the text box. I think that is just Edge Troll. And Word of Can basically doesn't work on the yes. So those five cards being last minute additions, <laughs> again, I, I didn't know about this until we talked about this earlier, but it does make some sense because they are sort of weird designs for different reasons in the context of Alpha. Let's get to the wards. Yeah. White ward. Doesn't work. Black ward. <laughs> Works. Blue ward works. Red ward works. Green ward works. Each of these uncommon white auras with the jet creature gains protection from the color. So it's a funny thing about cycles. Sometimes is just it. It isn't necessarily 
functional even if you just repeat the text box five times. <laughs> sure. So White Ward gives your creature protection from white, thus causing White Ward to fall oh. off. Doesn't work. Uh, I believe the card was sort of updated maybe 4th edition, 5th edition to say this ability doesn't destroy White Ward. Yeah. They had to call it out specifically. I don't even know if that works in the rules. <laughs> I don't know if you could like carve out protection from color that way, but whatever. If you're just playing the game by itself, it doesn't work. The other wards, they work fine. Uh, Circuit protection cycle. Cop white, cop blue, cop black, cop green, and cop red. Uh, each of these common white enchantments, they cost one and a white. You can pay a colorless to prevent damage from a source of the name color. Uh, cop black was emitted from the alpha common sheet. These cards are lame. Horrible. They're horrible cards. They play terribly. Yep. Um, there is some amount of color hosing that's going on in the set, which I think is... Sort of speaking again to the size of the print run. Yeah. Let's imagine that you are, your friend's been playing for a while and they have a really, really strong mono green deck. You keep losing to it and it's really frustrating. If you have cop green or or uh, death grip, death, death grip. I think death the grip. The enchantment. Yep. You might be able to sort of, you could find a single card that could maybe make up for it. They play horribly and that's a reason not to do it. But keep in mind that they were trying to orient around the idea that like, you might be coming in late. Maybe you're a novice player. Your friends might have better collections. And are there just low-hanging fruit out there at lower rarities that can help with this sort of stuff? Like, it's not lost on me. The, the wards, the circle protection, a lot of these, like, egregious color hosers do not appear at rare. They wanted them to be available for people to sort of even the playing odds against people with better collections. Solve some problems, yeah. basically. Uh, and then the final vertical, excuse me, the final horizontal cycle. I have one vertical cycle. But the final horizontal cycle is Boons. Healing Salve, Ancestral Recall, Dark Ritual, Lightning Bolt, and Giant Growth. Each of these instants has a mana cost of a single colored mana and an effect involving the number three. This cycle is asymmetric in that Ancestral Recall is rare and the rest are common. So let's talk about these. They knew more than they get credit for. Yes. So what's interesting about a lot of these cycles, the Circle of Protections, the Laces, a few others, they share names. The wards, another example. These don't. They don't really share any sort of naming convention besides, I suppose, arguably, each name is two words. And they're not at the same rarity. So yes, it is a cycle insofar as, yeah, they're all one, do three of something, and they're iconic for what they are. But I don't think there was the same level of intentionality in terms of getting the power level right or making them even in the way that, you know, the wards and the circles and the laces kind of are. I think it's just, what do the colors do at a fundamental level? What is their simple, splashy design space? Okay, blue is about drawing cards. And there's nothing really else they have going on that counts numbers, right? Because counter spell, counter three spells, it doesn't really work. There's no easy one, do three of something that blue has access to in alpha. So make it busted and just make it a rare. And the other ones are simple commons that are also quite strong. I mean, Lightning Bolt is a staple of, he's played out. Le of Legacy and Modern. Yeah. Dark Ritual is very strong in Legacy and otherwise banned. Um, Giant Growth is like a fine standard level card. It was legal and standard all the time. It got played a fair bit. Healing South is the weakest of the bunch. But there again, what else do you give white that's a one, do three of something? Especially at that stage of the game. Exactly. So right at the very beginning. It's a bit of a softer cycle. The fact that the rarities are split up complicates matters. The fact that the names don't have like a concrete naming convention is part of that too. But I think this is more about an expression of what are the fundamentals in the color pie that these colors do that can basically count up to three. 
and then just make five cards. And if some of them are stronger than others, it's okay. Vertical cycle. We got red three drop uh, creatures. I got gray ogre at common. Two and a red, two, two. That's it. Uh, Uth didn't troll at uncommon. I believe that was two and a red for a two, two single red regenerate. That's correct. Okay. And then sedge troll, which you've already gone over. Two and a red, two, two. If you control a swamp plus one plus one black to regenerate. And this cycle is very interesting to call out, even though it's very simple, because you could replace Sedge Troll with Granite Gargoyle as another 3-mana 2-2 two, two in red. It is a 2-2 two, two flyer with uh, reverse fire breathing. It okay. can summon us into a turn. And it introduces the concept of Strictly Betters, which is a, still a controversial topic in Magic. Like, are you supposed to do cards that are just better than other cards? And again, this is speaking to, one, the print run size, two, the difference between... Uh, Grey Ogre and Ustentrol, who really cares all that much? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, again, Dungeons and Dragons. If you just went out exploring in the world, some of these things would be more powerful than other things. Grey Ogre, there's an ogre out there. It's basically just living its life, and its power is that it can fight somebody. And that is expressed by being a tutu. Trolls, they are known for regenerating in Dungeons and Dragons. You can only kill them with fire and acid in the original campaigns. And they're a little bit tougher to kill. And a gargoyle, well, that's a magical creature. It's hard to find. It's rare. And it flies. And it's not ruining anyone's time. Now, it's a different conversation when everyone has access to everything and all the information's out there or you're supposed to do strictly betters. But early on in magic, it helps make the world feel more full. And it also allows you to feel like your collection is upgraded. Because when you open up another control, when you're looking at the gray ogre in your deck, you don't have to think about it. Just replace it. Yep. And that is a nice thing for new players to feel like they're understanding sort of the power level of the game. Uh, let's get to a cycle that's not so good. Hosers. Okay. Uh, these are cards that negatively affect one specific color or basic land Boy, how do you do that? Yeah, they, <laughs> they sure do. So when you see a hoser in 2023, uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But, you know, something that has protection from a color or anything like that and is difficult for a color to be, it's like, okay, this is annoying. Let's, let's even just say Death Bark. Okay. Really efficient above rate. It's very targeted what it does. Yeah. If you're playing against a green-white deck and you have Death Mark, your win rate goes up, most likely. Yep. And that's a, an example of sort of a modern level hoser. Uh, the hoser is in Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. Karma? You're dead. Blue Elemental Blast? Uh, closer to Death Mark. That's a, a Death Mark level design. It's much stronger than that, but it's the right way. Death Grip? Uh, you can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Flash fires. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Tsunami. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Conversion. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Life tap. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Gloom. Can't. I mean, you can. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game and also a dark ritual. This is out on turn one. Okay, sure. So no spells for the game starting on turn zero. Red elemental blast. Blue elemental blast. That's sort of the right way. Life force. Can't cast spells for the rest of the game. Volcanic eruption. This one is a this one is a can cast spells for the rest of the game, but it's so much more modest in power level than a lot of these other versions that I kind of give it a pass. Okay. You have to really mean it to blow out someone with that card. And our good friend, a member of Blue Lives Matter, Northern Paladin. This is license of registration. Yep. <laughs> okay, so we'll talk about the right and the wrong way to do this sort of stuff. Okay. Around mental blast, blue elemental blast stuff. Again, it's too strong. It's a little too flexible, but that's the right way. It's an efficient one for one. Life goes on. It, you know, you're playing a blue deck. I red blast you. That's probably good for me, but it's not like we don't want to play. Most of these cards are just you literally cannot play the game anymore. Yep. 
Uh, Northern Paladin, one, there's at least a one-turn window to respond before the thing happens. The rest of these are just like, this is just how we're playing the game going forward. And two, with Royal Assassin in the set, you can respond to a Northern Paladin by Royal Assassin it, yeah. and now we sort of move on with life. So there's a way in to say nothing of, you know, Pestilence and Terror and all the other ways to answer it. So Northern Paladin is not great, but it, it's closer to the right way. The Blasts are great. The rest of these are just so horrible. Of of these, I think Conversion's my favorite one. What I really... Oh, Conversion's so great. It rules. Well, what I love about Conversion is also the upkeep cost of two mana, because it's just like, your opponent can't play any spells for the rest of the game. They're locked out. The downside is you have to pay two mana. <laughs> it's like, well, I already had four to cast the thing. Like, what do I... What does that even matter at all? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, that's the deal. Yeah. That's the deal. And also keep in mind, you know, we're talking about a time where there's only basics and duels. So when you read Flash Fires and Tsunami, that's all of it. There's nothing left. It's not like you get to keep your like Temple of Mystery. <laughs> sure, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. all the are gone. Yeah, everything's gone. gone. Yeah, they're gone. All right. To close it up, our cycles. We got pairs. It's game time. It's game time. So, I'll fast twenty four pairs, and I'm gonna name one aspect of the pair, and we're gonna see if Patrick can name the other aspect of the pair. So we did one of these. Before we started recording to kind of get this established, Anka Mishra. Take a sec. There you go. Here we go. 23 to go. You ready? All right. Air Elemental. Uh, I mean, there's four elementals. What do you mean? Uncommon elemental creatures that have a mana cost of 3xx and a power of 4. That's what I got in my notes here. I mean, I guess an Earth Elemental? That's correct. All right. Hey. I'm, okay. That's, All what, right. I that's uh, what I got. Banalish Hero. Uh, Timberwolves. Correct. Castle. Back up, I got a story about Timberwolves. Let's go. Uh, it was one of the first cards that I got four co- rares that I got four copies of. It's green 1-1 one, one first strike? Banding. Because I was like, well, Banalish Hero is a common. Timberwolves is rare. It's got to be some reason that Banding is just busted in green. Okay. So I'm just going to get four Timberwolves. They were not good. <laughs> Continue. Uh, castle. Castle? It's pair. Uh... Uncom- uncommon enchantment that conditionally affects its owner's creature's power or toughness. So it would be something... Oh, uh, Orcish Oriflame? That is correct. Okay. Crusade. Bad Moon. That is correct. White Knight. Black Knight. That is correct. Blue Elemental Blast. Red Elemental Blast. That is correct. Brain Geyser. Mind Twist. That is correct. Death Grip. Life Force. That is correct. Earthquake. Hurricane. That is correct. Feedback. Oh, uh, okay. Feedback is... I know what feedback is. I'm trying to think of the the other side of that. Is it mana barbs? Incorrect. Wonderlust? Oh, yeah. Uncommon aura that deals one damage to the controller yep. of the enchanted permanent during each of their upkeeps. That's pretty... You're on a good site. You're doing well. You're doing well. That's one wrong. Water elemental. I mean, I guess fire elemental. That is correct. Holy strength. Unholy strength. That is correct. Living lands... Um, I can give you the note if you need it. Yeah, please do. Rare cards that turned lands of a particular type into one-one creatures. Corma spell. That is correct. What does Corma spell do? Turns swamps into one-one as an artifact. Lord of Atlantis. Goblin King. That is correct. Mana barbs. Um, I can give you. I can give you. Please the note. do. Rare red enchantments that deal damage to a player based on the number of lands they do or don't tap. 
Power Surge? That is correct. Mons Goblin Raiders. Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. That is correct. Phantom Monster. Rock of Care Ridges. That is correct. Sarah Angel. Sunger Vampire. That is correct. Smoke. Um, Give me the clue. Both allow players to only untap one of a type of permanent each turn. Winter Orb. That is correct. Time Twister. Wheel of Fortune. That is correct. Tsunami. Flatfires. That is correct. Wall of Bone. Um, Wall of Brambles? That is correct. Last one. Wall of Water. Wall of Ice? Oh, God, Wall of Fire. All wall right. of Fire. All right, all right. I'm going to give it to it's, you. No, I, I'm not taking it. I'm going to give it to you. I thought it was an 07. I forgot it was the one that could pump for mana. Correct. So, if I count the last one, you got 23 out of 24. I wish I had done better, but I got to... <laughs> I, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take the speed round for for what it is. Uh, well done, well done. Those are the cycles of Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. When we come back, we're gonna dabble into some misprints and a little bit of trivia, and then we're on to an award show. See you in a bit. It is now time for the misprints and other weird oddities that we're gonna find in sets. Now, I will say this is a new feature, but also. We're not going to find this in a ton of, like, new sets, right? This is going to happen more so in the old ones. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot in Alpha Beta Unlimited, obviously, because I have the list in front of me. But I feel like new sets over the past five, six, ten years, they don't have a lot of mistakes in them, whereas they were learning what they were doing. Yeah, there's even templating mistakes that were continued for a long time and then eventually cleaned up and revised. I don't even know if they make your cut of what would qualify as an error or misprint. Okay. But say disenchant, for example, just the wrong template for years. Sure, sure. So get into that some of that stuff. I've got a fun list here. Uh, we're gonna play. You guess some of these, okay? Because I know that you already nailed the Birds of Paradise one when we went over it. So you've got an idea of what's going on here. Now, first and foremost, there are numerous errors on alpha cards, okay? Including the accidental omission of Circle Protection Black and Volcanic Island, which we've already talked about. They made their they made their way into beta and unlimited. Okay, great. Um, Douglas Schuler. S-H-U-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. Every instance of Doug's name is misspelled on the cards that he drew. It's actually misspelled as S-C-H-U-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, there are a couple of cards. Animate Artifact. Banala Shiro, your favorite. Uh, Circle Protection White. Contract from Below. That's a really good card. It's really Probably strong. Right. Yeah. Uh, Demonic Tutor. Drain Life. Drain Power. Dwarven Warriors. Force of Nature. Frozen Shade. Glasses of Urza. Hypnotic Spectre. Ice Manipulator. Three Mountains. Northern Paladin, Power Surge, Prodigal Sorcerer, Psionic Blast, Righteousness, Sarah Angel, Tranquility, Unholy Strength, Unsummit, Uthen Troll, Veteran Bodyguard, Volcanic Eruption, Weakness, all spelled wrong. That's tough. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. All those cards are spelled with his last name incorrectly. Uh, Ice Manipulator was corrected in beta. Okay. Uh, and Mountain 297, the card exists in beta, not alpha, where it is mm -hmm. spelled wrong. So, uh, Douglas... I'm sure you're far over this, but that is a funny note that his name is misspelled incorrectly on all of those cards in Alpha. Yeah, they solved this uh, issue in Magic 30 by removing credits, uh, all artist credits from the art. Gone. Not but a problem, we, then. Do we not own the rights to this? Gone. Yeah. That's so, you know. But at the time, they just made it up by spelling the name correctly in, in future releases. Easy, easy solution. Uh, so let's talk other misprints worth noting. Again, we're going to play our fun game here where I'm going to mention some cards and see if Patrick knows what the mistake is. Now, I will say I will be 
the other games that we've played so far, I'm not that surprised that you got them. Like the because you know the set very well. Um, so as an example, Birds of Paradise. What's the error? Uh, instead of having the tap symbol, it says tap with two hashes next to it. Uh, my assumption there is that is uh, supposed to suggest a line break when you're looking at it, whatever their version was of an Excel file or however they sent the card over to the printer. I know that we have templating for games, for example, that when we're working in our card builder, open bracket, B slash close bracket, that means line break. And it'll show up on the printer that way. Something probably just got messed up here, conveying it over to the printer. Fixed in beta. Yep. Done. Circle of Protection Red. Um, I don't remember this one. Art miscredited to Anson Maddox. Oh, okay. All right. That I, I was more thinking about in the space of like mechanics. I didn't say what it was going to be. Okay. Uh, it should be Mark. I'm going to say his last name wrong. Is it Tedden? T-E-D-I-N? Tedden, I think. Okay. Mark, apologies if we got that wrong. Cyclopean Tomb. Oh, wow. Uh. Does this incorrectly say that it is a continuous artifact when it is, in fact, a mono artifact? Close. Okay. It's printed without a mana cost. Okay. Well, that's even worse. It should be four. Yeah. Not playable at zero, so it's not that big of a deal, but yeah, it's four. Fixed in beta. Uh, Death Ward. You're not going to know this one. All right. Art miscredited to Dan Frazier. Should be Mark Poole. Demonic Hordes. Uh, This is another one where the tap is wrong this is printed with an upkeep cost of bbb instead of swamp 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 oh okay on the card fixed in beta so the way is where you have to sack three swamps um it's it so th that's pretty intense uh elvish archers so misprinted as a one two for a striker instead of a two got it fixed in beta um along the same lines of demonic hordes force of nature Printed with an upkeep cost of G G G G in on the card instead of the force symbol. Oh, I see what okay. Never mind. All right, I do yeah, I did know that about Force of Nature. Now I know what you're talking about. There you go. Goblin Balloon Brigade. Um Is it just uh does it imply that you can give flying to anything? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh so the wording for the activated ability <laughs> could be interpreted as giving all goblins flying instead of only itself. Okay, so just everybody up in the air. Now, All there's right, not so that do, many goblins. Do you have Blessing on your list, then? I do not. Blessing is the same thing. Is it just, like, plus one, plus one, and it's, like, not until in a turn? Is that what it is? No, it it Blessing is a creature. It's an aura okay, that you can only pump this thing. Okay. And it's worded like, it's, it, well, it's ambiguous, but it is worded like anything. It's a, it, I think it says target gets plus one, plus one. Okay, sure. Which I mean, the target, the thing that's enchanted, or the target, or like, anything. Anything. Gotcha. Okay, same same deal. Uh, Goblin King. Um, hmm. You know, this is really disappointing. I recently owned an Alpha Calcum King. So the wording gave all goblins plus one, plus one in Mountain Walk, but the original intent was that it would give all other goblins those okay. abilities. So the Goblin King itself gets plus one, plus one in Mountain Walk as well. I thought it was a, I thought it was creature type Lord. Let me check. Let me check here in my notes. Like, I think that was like the, that was the solve back then. Cause that was the case. I think up until revised. So my notes here say beginning with revised, this problem was solved by listing the Goblin King's type as Lord. Okay. In the beginning with ninth edition, the word Goblin returned to the type and the word for the ability was changed to other goblins get plus one, plus one and have mountain walk. Oh, it's confusing regardless. Okay. Good thing to clear up. Orcish artillery. Uh, misprinted as a two mana one. Uh, Two-man enchantment instead of four-man enchantment. Matt Place told me that one of the first things that he did when he started playing Magic, which was after Alpha, was to get Alpha Orcish Order Flames. Okay. There so, was a lot of play it where it lies back then. So you're thinking, okay, so you're correct on Order Flame. How about Orcish Artillery? 
Um, so I know what the card does. I'm struggling to think of. Yeah, I, I don't know how it's worded incorrectly at the top. Printer with the mana cost of one and a red. Oh right, in beta instead of one red red. There you go. So busted. So, yes, busted. Yes. Uh, Phantasmal forces. I'm gonna save you on this one. Printed with an upkeep cost of a U instead of the, instead of the instead of the island symbol. Red elemental blast. Um, does the template say must be discarded? Must be pr- uh, was printed as an instant instead of an interrupt. Oh yeah, if that don't work in alpha. Yep. Uh, rock hydra upkeep cost of RRR and in parentheses heads. Yeah. Yes. Uh, instead of instead of the red in man case symbol. you didn't get the joke. It means heads. They tell you the joke in the parentheses in the card. It's not the most artful thing, but it is awesome. Uh, Central was miscredited to Jeff Mingus. It should be Dan Frazier. Tropical Island, art miscredited to Mark Poole. It should be Jesper Mirforce. I hope I'm saying that correctly, Jesper. And then on Summon, the clause reading enchantments on card are card ED. Another card ed? It's another... uh, instance i think like birds of paradise if something got lost in translation from the file to the printers yeah it should read enchantments on creature are discarded uh and also uh douglas Schuler's name was also misspelled on this one so a double whammy there yeah so uh alpha not the cleanest off the jump a couple of mistakes douglas Schuler's misspelling of his name probably the most egregious but i don't know for the first tr- for the first go probably working with like not many people not I, really that bad. I worked on, not magic, but I worked on games that were way worse than this. Sure. That's really not that bad, I think. Right? A couple of miscasting costs, okay, sure. But beyond that, that could have been way worse. Some really, like, basic words misspelled. Pretty much absent from that. Yeah. Games I worked on, oh, a lot of words misspelled. <laughs> sure. A lot of misspellings. So, those are your misprints from Alpha, as we mentioned. Or, excuse me, from Alpha. Yeah, from Alpha, not so much beta and eliminated as mistakes got corrected pretty quickly uh, that were made. As we go through more sets and we make our climb all the way to wherever magic will be present when we get there seven or eight years from now, there will be less misprints to talk about. So, with that, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show, the award show. Who's winning best card? How are we grading this set? And so much more. We're going to do it. Just a bit. All right. It's time. No more cycles. No more mechanics. It's everyone's favorite part of the show, which we get tweeted at about a lot, or at least we did. You know, we had our Ari Laxes of the world telling us that we were wrong about our awards. Well, Ari, you're wrong. We're right. Yeah, fortunately, this is not a set where we had to debate about what was the fourth best black common and limited or whatever, so. Thank goodness. Yeah. We don't have to do that anymore. It's time for our award show, where we're giving out all sorts of different awards for various cards in the set, and then we're going to grade the set and close her down. So, let's start off with Old Faithful. Oko Thief of Crowns Award for the best card in Alpha Beta Unlimited. You may begin. So I am trying to answer my questions through the lens of what was true at the time. Okay. Not necessarily what's the best card now or the best role player now, but at the time, in the moment, and kind of through early magic, what was the strongest card in the set? Okay. My vote is for Ancestral Recall. Okay. If you go back in time in 1993, your Black Lotus powered out a War Mammoth, if you were lucky, just wasn't really that good. Okay. Uh, Ancestral Recall was super powerful no matter what else was in your deck. My answer is also Ancestral Recall. My answer, the reason my answer is similar to yours, but also 
They knew. There's a reason it's a rare. And the rest of that cycle are commons. They knew. Yeah, of course. It's busted. They knew it was the best one. Okay. It's off by four mana. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, so it's just not close. That's a one mana card. It's off by four mana. Uh, Carnival of Souls award for the worst card in Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. So I'm excluding White Ward, even though it doesn't work. And that's I'm, fine. I'm giving my vote instead to Farmstead. All right, why does Farmstead win? Did you read it? No. It's it, it's transparently not playable. What does the card do? White, white, white. Triple white. Enchant land. Okay. During your upkeep, you can pay white, white to gain one. Okay, that's not a very good card. So it's not really good. Also keep good. in mind that the the best commons and uncommons are all stone rains. <laughs> <laughs> you suit up your land. It's like that one's just... Put that right in the graveyard. Okay. Okay. And um, it's in a, it, yeah, it's just, it's weaker than Ivory Cup, probably. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and that, that can't be and, Stone Rain. Yeah, and that, 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 and that card's not very good. Okay. Okay. I have the Conservator. Okay. Just doesn't do a great job of preventing damage. It's extremely expensive. It's not hard to blow up. I think Conservator might be a strictly better farmstead as <laughs> it's an artifact, but it's a fine choice. That card's also quite weak. Okay. Uh, we're going to go to the Doomblade Award. Now, previously, this was for, like, the best role player. It was a little bit ambiguous. I think we're going to change this up to, like, best non-rare in the set. You want to do that? Sure. Okay. So, best non-rare in the set is the new Doomblade Award underneath the new version of the Receivables. My answer is Counterspell. Counterspell is a great answer. Clean. Easy. Effective. Still good today. Yeah, I think there's a reasonable argument for Control Magic for much the same reason. Okay. Uh, my answer is slightly different, and in this sort of thing, I try to bias towards the artifacts, cards that anyone can play. I'm going to give the award to Icy Manipulator. Okay. Uh, at the time, it was one of the more powerful sort of just generic answer cards that you could have. It's extremely good against big creatures that suck, which is just all that Alpha is. Uh, it's really good in conjunction with Stone Rain, which is all that Alpha is. Yep. And I remember, because I started playing Revised, Revised did not have Icy Manipulator. There were some cards that were added from Unlimited and some cards that were taken out. Icy was one of the cards that was taken out. And when that card got reprinted in Ice Age, it was a huge deal because Icy was very expensive because it was only an Unlimited back. And Icy Manipulator was perceived to be powerful enough and flexible enough that when it was finally reprinted, it was a big deal. So I'm going to give it to Icy. We're moving on to the Aboro Palace in the Clouds Award. For fun of one of in the set. For those of you unfamiliar, Aboro Palace in the Clouds, legendary blue land. You can pay it. It taps for blue. You can pay a colors to pick it up. Most blue decks just kind of play one because they can. So my fun of one of in the set. And it's a, also this award is for a card that decks only play one of. And we're excluding restricted cards for the purposes of this too. Correct. Correct. So most sets, most modern sets nowadays, you're going to find some cards that you're just going to play one copy of. Again, Commander players can only play one copy of each card, so it's kind of, it's not true for them so much. But my my fun of one of, fun of being uh, maybe not the most perfect thing, it's Soul Ring. That's my fun of one of. It is a fun of. And it generally just should be a one of. Give it a Soul Ring too. It's a great fun of one of. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Now, initially you had False Orders. Yeah. But no longer fun of one of? Well, that's more of a personal one for me. Okay. Eh, fine. We'll change it to False Orders. Okay. Because again, we got to go back in time. Started a revised. Revised has some of the ABU cards, not others. Okay. And there was this perception because a lot of the cards that did made the cut, Power 9, a lot of the strongest cards from Alpha, it's like, oh, anything that was back in Unlimited had to be cracked because they didn't want us to get it on the cheap here. 
So somehow I got my hands on the false orders. I don't know if you know because it was hard to get unlimited cards at the time. Okay. And it is fun. Okay. I only owned one. Perfect. And it was, even at the time, bad enough that had I had a second one, I would not have played it. Okay. So, yeah, I'll change my answer to false order, so that's fine. Uh, we're going to go to the Mystic Confluence Award for the best vintage cube card in the set. Your answer. Black Lotus. We differ. Okay. Ancestral Recall. Fine answer. Um, if I were to open a pack with both cards, I would select Ancestral Recall. I think that's reasonable. Okay. I would probably take Black Lotus, but I don't. Ancestral is a fine answer, too. Okay. Um, the Smothering Tide Award for best commander card in the set. Guess Soul Ring. It, that's the only answer. That's the only answer. Now, this is an easy award to grant, but now we're gonna have we're gonna have to have a conversation. Okay. So you know, the commander ban list is pretty lengthy. Soul Ring's not on it. Some people believe that Soul Ring should be on it, some people don't. It's a little controversial. Heads up, I don't play Commander at all. You? I sort of follow it sort of passively, but I'm not an active player. All right. So I believe you I don't want to say this for you. So you, you state your case for Soul Ring. Okay. And this is not to say I strongly believe that Soul Ring should be legal. I'm just walking through what I see as the benefit. All right, let's do it. One is is a card that's extremely strong, probably the strongest card in the format, that's relatively inexpensive. It is not a great experience to start playing something like Commander. This is a huge ecosystem. All these cards, and it's like, oh yeah, all the best cards are five hundred dollars. It's not good. Okay, nice to have the strongest card out there be relatively accessible. I think. Second, value over replacement. If you think that Soul Ring is too good and you want to ban it, what do you think about Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, Grim Monolith? Sure. Not, like, how many cards are seventy-five percent as good as Soul Ring and pretty much the same thing? And you would also want to ban in this world. Okay. Or it's incoherent that Sol Ring is banned and these cards are uh, allowed to pass. Especially because Mana Vault and Mana Crypt and Grimmonolith are quite expensive. Like, that seems like net downside to me. Third, the nature of Commander. Someone goes turn one Sol Ring that is really strong, can be really strong some amount of the time, but the three players at the table have some agency to manage that advantage, either by blowing it up or just doing other stuff to keep them off balance. So if you're going to have a card that's that big of an outlier, it's really nice for it to be, here it is on turn one. It's obvious I'm now really far ahead. Now the rest of the table can kind of hone in on it, on me or this card to try to manage it, as opposed to something really expensive that just ends the game on the spot when it gets played, which is a lot of what the commander ban list is made up of. All right, you know what? This is my first time ever doing this. Let us know in the comments what you think about that. I don't know if I agree with you, but I don't have a strong pushback I, I'm either. Not, I'm not saying that I have a strong opinion about its legality. I'm trying to just lay out when I see the benefits of it being legal. If you say it's too strong, it's too repetitive, auto-includes on commander, kind of suck. I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to all of those arguments. I'm not in a position to really speak to the power level of the thing, just that I think having something that's cheap, transparent, cheap both in terms of mana and cheap in terms of cost, uh, be the strongest card in commander is not a bad thing. Pack Rat Award for best limited card in the set. So I'm guessing here. Turns out I haven't played this set in limited at all. How's Force Field sound? Force Field's really good. Okay. So you have to imagine the limit of this format is someone is going to get decked. Okay. okay? That's that's uh, that's known ahead of time. Okay. Okay. 
what are the cards that are good in that kind of game insofar as they guarantee that your opponent gets decked? Force Field is a great example. Okay. There is the, and then there's the, what are cards that could potentially end the game by themselves such that you don't get decked? My answer is Fireball. Okay. Fireball is super busted in a game where, like, Grey Ogre is the best creature you get your hands on. Sure. Okay. Your game goes on for a million turns. Okay. And you kill someone in one shot with a Fireball. And okay. it's a common. I think Force Field is a great answer. Um, it doesn't stop you from getting decked, but it pretty much makes sure that they get decked if they don't deck you. Okay, yep, yep. And uh, it's not easy to remove. It's not like there's a lot of commons and uncommons floating around that deal with artifacts. So I think Force Field is a really good answer. The overrated type of answer is like Time Walk. Yeah, no, that's not it. It's, it's like worse it. than Explore. <laughs> it's like attack with what? Do what, do what oh, with gosh. my extra turn? <laughs> Uh, Black Lotus, like probably not playable. What do you do with a Black Lotus? It's like ramp out of War Mammoth. Yeah, best best is like turn two Errol Mental. It's like sure. that's that's your doing it. That, that's the nuts. You are that is the nuts. Yeah. Uh, we got the Char Rumbler Award for weirdest card in the set. Char Rumbler, infamous four mana, negative one three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking for a weirdo in this set. Uh, I'll let you go first. I'm gonna go with Lich. Okay, Lich is a all time classic for me. When I first saw a Blackboard copy, this was another card that didn't make the cut from Unlimited to Revise. So it was in that like rarefied, exciting sort of space that the monsters were. The artwork and the tone of the card is so cool. I remember thinking like that's the coolest card I've ever seen. Okay. It is also very weird. Uh yes, there's a lot going on with very it. Very build aroundy, quadruple black mana cost. Um, so it's complicated, but it's also sweet. Okay. Uh my answer is Chaos Orb. That's a good choice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just one one card where we're just flipping cards. That is a really good choice. And they've never really done anything like that ever again. Yeah. Right? Like so this and also Chaos Orb has its own random subset of rules now in the game when you're play it, it also depends on who you're playing with. Yeah. Too. It's just like, ah, I didn't flip, so it just doesn't count. Like maybe you get a do-over, maybe you get nothing if it doesn't flip. Something that's very funny about that is again, Matt plays who I brought up earlier, he used to lay out his permanents in like the weirdest ways when playing games or whatever. Grid. Just grid or something. Yep. You just base out. And I was like, why do you set your cards up like that? And he's just like Chaos Orb. Like I played against Chaos Orb so much that it's just baked into me that like, don't put your two creatures that are good next to each other. You got to space that out. Spread them. Spread them out. I like it. Uh, We got Blank Award for the best card name in the set. This is pretty simple. What do we think the coolest card name is? I know this isn't the most, we talked about the flavor aspects of this set. Obviously, the flavor aspects of Magic in 2023 and beyond are much different than they are back in 1993. But there's some cool card names here. My vote is for Ship and Dragon. Okay. It's just so... If you heard the name, you would want to see the art. And then you see the art, and it's as more of a badass than you thought it was going to be. All right, we're in the same space here. Force of Nature. Great choice. Yeah. yeah. Just, I want to see that thing, and it is reflective of a green creature that's going to kick crap out of you. Right. I love it. I love it. Awesome. John Avon Award for Best Land Artwork in the Set. You my may vote, begin. My vote is for the Christopher Rush Path Forest. Okay. I think it's beautiful. I loved it when I was 15 and still love it today. Do you have them? Uh, I have a few. Okay. Yeah. But not like your mountain collection. No, not like my mountains. Uh, my vote is for Bayou. Mm. Of all the dual lands, I think it is the most reflective of what it is, which is just like you're in a swamp and there's some trees around. Uh, Tundra kind of counts for me. Tropical Island kind of counts for me. Like, those aren't doing anything poorly, per se. Um, Scrubland is just, like, whenever. 
So I think Bayou is nuts. Okay. I love Bayou. Okay. And part of uh, an issue with early magic is just the fact that you have one basic land type, swamp, which is relatively uncommon in the real world, yep. and also typically a subset of other land types. You, But it's a swamp appears uh, in a forest or near like a tributary or whatever. So you kind of have to hack it a little bit. And you see that in Savannah, uh, excuse me, Scrubland, Underground Sea, and Badlands of like, is it really swamps? Yeah. You kind of are, but you're taking some liberties. Bayou is like, that's that's a swamp. Perfect. That's a swamp. Right on the nose. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some some sort of early creative issues you can see with swamps and magic and trying to, how do you blend these organically into the other land types in these kind of cycles? But Bayou is just a 10 out of 10. They crushed it. Yeah, they crushed it. Um, and awards that we are unable to do for this episode, but we're going to do in the episodes when we can do them, when it makes sense, we're going to stick with them. Uh, the Aurelius Fury Award for most overhyped card during previous season. Aurelius Fury was noticeably overhyped to a degree I don't think we've ever seen before for a card that did effectively nothing for its entire time it constructed. And then there is the, but of course, there was no preview season, so we can't do that here. And then the Tarmogorf Award for most underhyped card during preview season. Again, we can't do that here because preview season was not a thing during uh, this time, but Tarmogorf is probably the most underrated card of all time of card gets printed a lot of weird things going on isn't worth anything then goes to like 200 dollars rare best card in multiple formats etc the only card i can think of that's an analogy at least off the top of my head is necropotence okay and what necropotence and tarmogoyf share in common is they're really complicated when you read them sure it's just so hard to tease out what's going on there and tarmogoyf's like frame is certainly doing no help there. uh yep yep um but yeah, there's something there, a game design principle of it's risky to nest a lot of power into things that are really confusing because it's just not appreciated. And Necrobotens and Tarmogoyf are, I think, the one and one A of that in some order. It's time. It's time to close her down. Um, what card won the set for you? Black Lotus. Okay. I mean, there's a couple things. One is like, it's basically a pop culture icon. It is famous enough that it has, it, it exists outside of magic as a pop culture archon and is just sort of a gaming thing. Um, the art is super recognizable. It's really powerful and desirable, but more than anything else, it's not prescriptive. That is what I think the brilliance of it is. It's not telling you to play magic a particular way. It's just do whatever you want with this mana. Go find other cards, find things that are fun to do. And there was something that is true in 1993, and it's true in 2023, that when your opponent plays a Black Lotus, there's an anticipation of what is about to happen. And that has never gone away. And there's a lot of other cards that are really, really strong too, that are either like one and dones the minute that they get played, or they're awfully prescriptive in the way that they do play. And Black Lotus is just, you figure it out. You find the thing that you want to do with this. It's probably not going to be good in set one. You know, those war mammoth. Dark comes out. Don't hate. Dark comes out. Ball evening. But just do that on turn one. Whatever. There's a long history of it. And um, it, it is uh, not an accident, uh, in my opinion, or not coincidence, that it is such an iconic card and game piece and piece of art that its reach goes beyond people who play Magic and that hit into pop culture and gaming more generally. I like your answer. My answer is 
I would argue very different. The card that won the set for me, and a card we have not discussed in this entire video, is Wrath of God. Iconic artwork. When I was coming up into Magic, the first time I saw the thing, I was like, what is going on there? Okay. Um, obviously a little bit controversial, given the time of 1993, and like, you know, there's some satanic aspects to this game, and then there's Wrath, there's God killing all these things, so all that stuff, right? Because people have not read the Bible. God is out there doing some bad, well, whatever. Be that as it may. <laughs> Be that as it may. Um, what it, the card is like the card has aged thirty years, and it's still good, right? And is reprintable, and there are multiple different versions of it. So one of the things that always happens every set, it feels like now, is what's the sweeper? You know, is it a six mana sweeper? Is it a five mana sweeper? Can they seriously print a four mana sweeper again? Right? And this is the first four mana sweeper. And so we have seen so many different takes on a sweeper in basically every set that comes out now. Again, we don't know how much it's going to cost. Can the creatures be regenerated off of it? Is it going to have this set's mechanic like Doomscar had with Foretell? You don't know. But all of that is always important every set. People care about what the sweeper is every single set. And that all originates from the original sweeper in Wrath of God. Great answer. And there's a few things that I really love about Wrath of God. One is uh, Alpha has a lot of rares that I would describe as sort of deck building puzzles because they're symmetrical. You know, there's Anka Mishra, Dengus Egg, Armageddon, Wrath of God, Mana Flare. Like, what do you do with this thing? And Wrath of God is very interesting because a lot of these are very proactive. Play Mana Flare, then you play with Fireball. You play with Vodka Mishra, then you start blowing up land. Whatever the thing is. Wrath of God is symmetrical, but it's defensive. And when you're a novice player, winning the game without creatures in your deck doesn't really make much sense. So it's an interesting puzzle of how do I optimize for this symmetrical but defensive card in a way that a lot of the symmetrical and proactive cards are pretty straightforward. So it's cool in that respect. Also, what I love about it, the thing that you touched on, the cards in Alpha, the rares in particular, that are basically like... This was good in 1993, and every time they put it in standard, it's good, and it's not problematically good. Those are really special designs. Alpha doesn't have a whole lot of them. Wrath of God is one. I would say Birds of Paradise is another one. Yep. But the list is pretty short. Most of the rares in Alpha are either unplayable by modern standards or not things you're supposed to do. And the ones that play well and hold up power level-wise, that they're good in standard without being ruinous, those are really special. It's like kind of incredible to think about getting them that right. And uh, Wrath of God is on that short list uh, along with Birds of Paradise for me. Yeah, like like you said, they're those cards, cards that you can play 30 years later and like they're not unfair. They're like pretty balanced, right? And there's just a million different takes on, on Wrath of God now. I think it's actually like pretty special and iconic. It's, you don't know you're going to get it right then, but they did. And it's also, uh, it's interesting because it's not that different from other white rares that are way worse designs. So you have Armageddon. That's the mirror, right? Yeah, never coming back. All right, that one's not good. Because <laughs> never you're just, coming back. You know, that one is not good because you just uh, you get ahead and then you get in and your game just sits there. Yep. Right? It's not great. Whereas Wrath of God, it's implicit that you play it and then we keep playing from that spot. It's not just determined from that moment. You also have balance. Balance is really problematic. One, because it's just kind of way too strong and intense for that amount of mana. But also, at that time, was very pay to winny. More than probably any other card, in my opinion. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. It's so powerful with Moxes. That's the trick. You play a bunch of artifact mana, and then you balance. You have all your mana, and your opponent who's just playing with their basics 
does not have any mana. Uh, so Wrath of God actually hits the nail on the head in a way that uh, several other ostensibly similar designs, I think, fail the test. All right, final question. Uh, give the set a grade on, slight change. We're no longer A to F. We're 1 to 10, 1 being the worst, 10 being, oh my goodness. What do we grade it? 10. There you go. I mean, so you can talk about, you know, maybe you're not supposed to do anti. Maybe banding is not the thing you're supposed to do. First of all, I would say that magic is so successful that the burden of proof to change anything in the set is awfully high because this was step one towards a 30-year game. Yeah, that's going to just keep on going and going. But I think that the execution of rarity is way ahead of its time, better than sets that came after it. Uh, where the power level is nested, I think, is largely ahead of its time, better than sets that came after it. And the cards, you still look at them and they're just cool. And there is something to be said, I think, about how sort of complicated magic design is now and how every card has to be about something fulfilling a role uh, in either limited or constructed. But I remember having so much fun playing with these cards, not because I had a particular plan in mind or that I was trying to build this like linear deck, but just that the game pieces were fun and evocative and I was playing with random ones and my bows were playing with random ones and it was fun. And um, that experience has never gone away. I mean, that's what Draft Concealed is. Yeah, actually. And uh, that's really, really fun. And Alpha is able to capture that experience really, really well and then be around for 30 years and inspire a million other games. And this uh, this video series, like all of it, it's like starts here. It's an easy 10. I think it's an easy 10. Um, for all the reasons that you mentioned, but most notably, one of the reasons you mentioned is that it inspired and has inspired a million other games. And none of them are as good as this one. Dumb. As many games have tried and have we've seen as many games have failed, some still exist, whatever, but of the games that we see, people, you know, the games that we that we have seen over, you know, the 30-year history of Magic, they try to mimic the mana engine. They try to remove the mana engine. The mana engine is the best part of Magic, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, they, they feel as though they have to have limited format and a constructed format and all these things. Try as hard as you might. Uh, you're never going to be able to replicate or make a better card game than this because... For whatever reason, this engine for a card game is basically perfect, and once you have it, I don't really think there's a way to improve upon it. People have spent a lot of try time trying to solve problems that aren't problems. Yep. And, you know, I mean, Magic makes little nods here and there. I would say that the um, evolution of the mulligan rule is an effort to f allow people to have more agency in decision-making. The issue with, with the mana system isn't necessarily, like, it itself— but some percentage of the game, you don't really make a meaningful choice. And they've made efforts mechanically and with the mulligan rule to sort of address that. But at a fundamental level, no, the mana system is brilliant. Um, I think if I had a critique of it, it would just be that it's a little daunting for new players to figure out how many lands are they supposed to be playing. Your early games are just a lot of land and color screwed because you just don't understand how much band you need to be playing. Um, that, that part is not great, but that's a very small critique in the scheme of things it is brilliant been around for 30 years gonna keep going and uh gonna be around for another 30 it starts here from like there's no predecessor no there's no thing to copy to do this is it the fact that this just sprang from nowhere inspired by dungeon and dragon sort of as a series of creative tropes and but not as a game engine 
Like I, I kind of can't believe it. I still go back. Obviously, I, I studied the set pretty exhaustively. I still can't believe how good it was for the time. It doesn't make any sense for it to just wash onto the ocean like this. If they didn't crush it then, we wouldn't be here now. Number one in the books. Alpha Beta Unlimited, the OG for the first episode of The Resleevables. Love it. When we come back, it is set number two, which, if memory serves, is Arabian Nights. Oh, yeah. What do you, uh, you know quite about? I'm also very passionate about. Beautiful. I cannot wait to cover that set. Uh, maybe you can bust out the old mountains for us? Oh, I have. Uh, I got a drop of honey. Okay. I got a place at a city of Barresses. Got multiple Library of Alexandria's for some reason. <laughs> I got an island of Walk Walk not that long ago. I'll tell you one thing, another, you know, backing up just a little bit. I remember one day, you know, I was uh, tooling around on my computer a little bit. This was many years ago. Uh, you know, having a few drinks, staying up late. You know, woke, woke up the next day, just falling asleep on the couch. Uh, three days, four days later, got an envelope from Star City Games. I was like, I don't know, whatever, open this up, and it's just all of their old band of the seas. <laughs> just whatever they whatever they had. Whatever they had, I just took. So all this is to say, I love the early sets. They're not always excellent in terms of modern design sensibilities. They have some big mistakes, but to come from no understanding to making this stuff is is really incredible and fun. Um, that's episode one. Arabian Nights will be episode number two. Thanks for watching. Glad to be back. I actually might be Darius Miles' biggest fan. I would believe that. That's very possible. Shout out Resleevables, one of my favorite podcasts. That's us. God damn it. Restart. Restart. There it is. Okay. There it is.